Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. This is Nick Shalom. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of In the Nick of Time. Today we have we have a great guest, guest Chris, who will be sharing with us a lot of his experience and journey, and talk about uh, the software factories in DoD, but also supply chain and cyber, and a lot of great topics. So make sure you're ready for your questions in the comment section below. Also, if you want to share, you're here today. Uh, put your name and company. We'll be able to. Uh, highlight you on the screen um, so we can uh, make sure that people know you're here. Also, uh, of course, uh, not to forget, if you have not done it already, uh, make sure you register to the mailing list. Uh, we have about 5,000 people now on the mailing list, but that's uh, pretty shy compared to the 38,000 uh, people we got on LinkedIn. So we need to make sure we're not completely dependent on LinkedIn to decide uh, maybe one day to uh, shut, shut us off. So, uh, uh, put your email on that mailing list so you can get a notification also uh, for the next episode and also for the next videos that we publish uh, usually once a week about uh, technical topics. Uh, you'll see this week we uh, we just published yesterday a video on chaos engineering. Uh, so if you don't know about chaos engineering, uh, do that. Also for people that are struggling sometimes with LinkedIn, uh, make sure you give a shot to um, YouTube live. Uh, if you see the, the video being behind and lagging a little bit on LinkedIn, uh, unfortunately, um, YouTube is the better way. So I, I have the link on the chat section. If you missed it, uh, just go on LinkedIn on YouTube and you can uh, directly access the live show. And usually you should have less latency there. So I put the link again in case you don't have it. All right. So also wanted to point out, if you've not seen it, we just released a new website. Love to get your feedback. That's where we're going to be uh, posting also the, the videos as well for you to keep up with some of the learning we're going to be releasing in August. So you're going to see we're going to be releasing a, a whole curriculum uh, for managers and executives. Uh, so technical, but not too technical, but deep enough, uh, deep enough to be dangerous. Uh, so if you want to uh, see uh, the future 45 segments of deep dive uh, DevSecOps slash digital transformation slash culture uh, to learn more about uh, how to get this done at scale in your organization. You're going to be able to find this uh, stuff out on the website as well in the next uh, few weeks. So stay tuned for that. Also, um, if you uh, did not yet subscribe to the YouTube channel, do that. Uh, thanks for to the uh, thousand and three hundred and fifty subscribers that we have. Like I told you, we just released the chaos engineering video, but if you missed it, we also have a great uh, software bit of materials uh, as bomb video uh, and also GitOps uh, video and service mesh and zero trust and, uh, and and things like that. So if you wanna have a, a quick deep dive under under 10 minutes, often seven, eight, nine minutes, um, then you can uh, take a look at those videos and tell us what we could improve and what's missing or what we could change to make it uh, better for you to to learn and keep up and move at a pace of relevance all right so today i'm pretty excited because we have a a guest that's been a long time friend and also a a very small individual that's done a lot in his career so before i bring him bring him up on the screen i wanted to introduce you if you don't know him already but you probably do but if you don't you're going to meet chris hughes today who serves as the co-founder and CISO of Aquaia. Uh, not Aqua, don't confuse them. Uh, there is an I, and you'll see the difference. 
Uh, Chris has 20 years of IT and cyber experience. Uh, of course, uh, active duty in the Air Force, a civil servant in the Navy and GSA and FedRAMP with FedRAMP. And of course, he was then a consultant in the private sector as well because he never sleeps. I don't know how he gets to do all this stuff. He's also an adjunct professor uh, for the cyber uh, programs at the Capital Technology University uh, of uh, and, the, of course, University of Maryland Global Campus. So that wasn't enough, of course. And uh, he is a speaker and uh, part of the uh, Cloud Security Alliance Incident Response Working Group. And he served as a chair, uh, the, the membership chair for the Cloud, Cloud Security Alliance in D.C. Uh, he also has a, a podcast, so if you've not checked it out, I love it. I watch, uh, watch, uh, watch the podcast a lot. He has uh, a co-host and a, a guest as well. Um, so check out the Resilient Cyber Podcast if, you, if you've not seen it. And of course, he has fancy certifications, but no one cares uh, because they are mostly worthless. So that's that's fine. I have the same. So who cares? Uh, but you're gonna see is 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 more than just a, a talker. Uh, Chris is a doer, and he gets stuff done. So that's why I'm so excited uh, to have Chris on today. So let's bring him up on the screen. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, I was so excited. Like I said, uh, you know, I've. I've uh, I've been very excited uh, since we announced uh, uh, that you're going to be uh, coming on the show because we have so many great topics we're going to be talking about today. And it's kind of a broad spectrum of things, uh, thanks to your experience, but also thanks to uh, your willingness to uh, to discuss some of these topics. And, you know, when I, uh, of course, look at your background, love for you to give us, for people that don't know you, of course, most people uh, know you, but for people that don't know you, give us a little bit of uh, maybe your journey and what uh, uh, took you all the way here? Yeah, so uh, like I said, I've been in IT or cybersecurity almost 20 years. I started off, you know, a little bit pre-military, but then joined the Air Force and was in cybersecurity there, uh, all the way from everything from a help desk, you know, system administration, network administration, up through, you know, cybersecurity focused roles. Uh, left active duty Air Force in 2012, and then worked in a couple different industry roles, supporting agencies like DISA. Uh, and then ultimately became a civil servant with uh, NAVWAR, SPAYWAR at the time. Uh, and then also, uh, worked there for about four and a half years on cloud security and some early DevSecOps programs at both Navy and Defense Health Agency. And then moved from there ultimately to uh, GSA and FedRAMP, where I became one of the technical representatives on the FedRAMP team, uh, representing G uh, GSA on the JAB, uh, reviewing cloud service offerings coming through to get approved. Uh, and then worked on some industry roles, you know, with different companies. Some of the folks you've actually had on the show already, uh, working with programs like Platform One, uh, the Space Force, and a little engagement with Kessel Run as well. Uh, and then ultimately ended up co-founding my own company named Acquia, uh, where I serve as a CISO and co-founder. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, I'm involved in a lot of industry activities too, like, you know, Cloud Security Alliance. Um, we actually just published a SaaS Security Governance and Best Practices white paper. I definitely recommend checking that out. Uh, and involved with other groups like NIST, uh, serve as the co-chair for the NIST uh, multi-cloud security uh, working group that they just started uh, earlier this year. And uh, yeah, pretty active on LinkedIn, of course, and uh, happy to be here. Yeah, you're one of the few that manages to keep up with me on LinkedIn. I don't know how you managed to do all this stuff. I'm already pretty busy with LinkedIn alone, but you also had your show, uh, which is also very, very exciting. And your CSA work, and you have a startup, and you know I don't know how you sleep, or if you do sleep, I, I don't know. Maybe you're just an overachiever, like uh, we've seen in the active duty. It's it's kind of uh, when you move from active duty to uh, to the boring civilian life. I guess it's a whole different uh, uh, ball game, huh? 
Yeah, I have. Well, I have four. I have four kids, eight and under, so they don't let me sleep much. Oh, so yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm awake quite a bit. So yeah. No, I'm just really and passionate you didn't talk about, about the taekwondo. Uh, you forgot about the is any taekwondo? What, what is uh, it you do? Jujitsu. Jujitsu. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, jujitsu. Yeah. Because yep. that wasn't enough, you know. Like you needed a little bit of uh, martial arts on top of it. Because you didn't, you 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 were not doing enough. That's good. I like it. But I like that you. Um, I saw uh, on your LinkedIn also uh, all the time you spend with the kids. That's uh, obviously a, a big reason as to why also I decided to leave. Uh, the government when i started i had i had no kids and now i have uh, three kids under four you know with all girls and uh with twins so it's always interesting and you know having the luxury to uh to be home and spend more time and not having to drive uh, uh four hours a day to the pentagon is 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 always uh, interesting but it's funny how you also miss it right it's kind of uh, there's always uh two sides of the same coin huh Yes, it's definitely a dichotomy. You know, anyone that's a parent and has like career aspirations like you and ambitions to make an impact, you know, I'll say for me personally, it's always a, a difficult, you know, dichotomy of wanting to make an impact and do all we want to do professionally, but ultimately knowing like our number one priority is our kids and that that time goes so fast. Uh, so juggling the two is always challenging. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. All right. So we talk about you. Let's talk a little bit about what you've seen, because like you said, you were able to really do a lot across the government, even at, at GSA with FedRAMP, uh, which is a whole uh, other kind of side of the house already. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what you've seen across the DoD uh, software factories first. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I've spent some time working with uh, Platform One. On the Platform One side, I worked with uh, both the SecOps team uh, as well as the compliance team. Uh, you know, focusing on things like uh, standing up the VSOC that they had going on early on there and, and engaging with the existing CSSPs, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, for better or worse, maybe quite weren't where Platform was what uh, Platform One was from a technical perspective quite yet. And they have been using some legacy tooling and stuff, but I know they've made a lot of improvements. Uh, and then also on the compliance side, I had a, a lot of opportunity to work with the team in terms of flushing out like shared responsibility models. Uh, customer responsibility matrices to show, you know, what you inherit from the IaaS, the PaaS layer, you know, what the mission owner, system owner is responsible for, uh, those kind of things, and mapping security controls to the tech stack at Platform One. Uh, and then from there, I went and supported uh, Kobayashi Maru or Section 31 on the Space Force side. Uh, I had an opportunity to work with the DOD or DISA Infrastructure as Code project. Uh, which was, you know, deploying a declarative state of uh, a CSP. In this case, it was Azure uh, deploying that for the Space Force. Uh, so it was a neat opportunity to get an experience with the Infrastructure as Code initiative coming out of DISA and see how they kind of scripted that out, how they've mapped the inheritance of controls, you know, how they automated deployment and such. And I think that's a really good opportunity for a lot of mission owners that maybe don't have the technical skills or, you know, the, the resources to do it themselves in many cases. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, you know, from there, uh, I'm actually working on the civilian side at the moment. I know we'll probably get to this, but working on the civilian side at a moment at the moment uh, with Centers for Medicare and Medicaid uh, on a software factory uh, product called Batcave, uh, which is reusing a lot of the core components of Big Bang. Uh, so a lot of uh, similarities there from uh, from Platform One as well. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting uh, how kind of all this knowledge is is spreading, right? You talked about the the DISA team. I I love those guys. You know, I spent a lot of time as the uh, the co of the DoD Enterprise DevSecOps Initiative uh, with DoD CIO. And of course, this uh, uh, has been embracing, uh, funny enough, most people don't realize that, but they've been embracing really kind of the work we've been doing in DevSecOps. And they pushed this idea of, of uh, uh, I remember when they brought it up to me, you know, uh, whether or not we should be doing more automation. And of course, you know, uh, ruthless automation is the only answer 
uh, to that question. So, uh, you know, when they brought up the uh, the the interest of of building this uh, new initiative of of building better and 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 streamlined uh, automation IAC to deploy things on different cloud providers. Of course, you know they started uh, with Azure, but the goal was to be really spreading across uh, all providers. I think that's uh, exactly where we want to be. You know, if you if you compare with the old DISA, right, that was pushing the the stigs, uh, where you had to do manual uh, stigs and, and enforcement, and 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 really the the the, the concept of, of automation was a was a foreign a foreign concept. That's a massive improvement for for the team, right? Yeah, I think it's a huge opportunity. And you've talked a lot about GitOps and you know infrastructure as code and compliance as code and why those are valuable to the DoD and the federal community. And I think it's a uh, you know a lot of organizations don't have the, the technical skills or resources uh, to stand up a cloud infrastructure from scratch. Um, and ultimately, it, it leads to a lot of you know uh, click ops and bespoke you know kind of uh, deployments that are really different, have a lot of uh, variation. For example. Uh, so leaning into that DISA infrastructure as code project, it started off with Azure, as you mentioned, but now AWS is now authorized as well, I believe, up to impact level six, actually, I think. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so it provides the mission owner an opportunity to go in there and have that click button deployment to get up to speed quickly, get their cloud environment provisioned, you know, and have those baked in security controls that they can inherit uh, from the, the DISA's uh, provisional authorization. Uh, so I think it's definitely the, the way to go over the future. And it's going to speed up deployment and lead to a lot of uh, consistency and configuration management and control, you know, for mission owners across the DOD. Yeah, it's kind of common sense, right? Teams can then focus on their mission software instead of uh, having to build all the infrastructure and platform work, and, and you know, all the way to the seventh mesh. It's it's just it's just so common sense to me. I, I've always struggled, right, as to why you know so many teams decide not to reuse um, code from other teams. You you've seen across the department and even outside of the department uh, the lack of talent and resources we have, but yet at the same time. You know, people uh, are building things in vacuums and, and often not reusing uh, different uh, uh, kind of work being done outside of their teams. What, what do you, I, I've always tried to find, like, what's the reasoning or what's the, the, the real problem? You know, some people, of course, say, well, you know, enterprise services are not very good. So so people don't want to use them because they usually don't bring the right kind of value. It's not flexible enough. It's too opinionated. Right. I would argue that platform one is 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 pretty good, but I'm biased, right? Um, but then you also have you know people say, well, you know, uh, we have taught the uh, PEOs and PMs and material leaders and and all these program managers not to depend on enterprise services because we told them they were not uh, uh, dependable and often uh, disappear because of funding issues and different things like that. So a lot of uh, uh, the PEOs are just um, uh, refusing to to embrace any kind of enterprise service, which is kind of compounding the, the problem. But then you also have, uh, I guess, some you know teams kind of pretty locked into to a single company. You know what I really wanted to make sure with Platform One was the ability to be uh, um, to have multiple uh, companies on contract, so we don't get locked in, you know, to a Red Hat or VMware or, or whatever. Right, we have, having the diversity of options, including you know the smaller guys as well. And so enabling you know teams to pick the best the best tool to get the job done. But I, I've seen also you know people uh, get all the training from some of these larger companies, whether it's a cloud provider or, or, or a Kubernetes distribution company, and, and they often are pretty opinionated and, and then learn learn things as a one way street, and 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 they struggle to see that there's other avenues 
what, what do you think? And of course, there is ego. I, I'm going to argue that there is a decent piece of ego somewhere. But what do you think is really what's preventing teams to collaborate better in a world where we're all complaining about funding and lack of resources? Yeah, I mean, you raise a lot of interesting points. And like, you know, from me being on the outside perspective, I've watched some of these uh, uh, tentious, you know, kind of uh, relationships and there's been contention and, <laughs> and uh, you know, you know how it is. I've, I've seen you and others kind of go at it online and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but it is an interesting dichotomy in the sense that we have a robust software factory ecosystem. It's been it's been kind of codified in the software modernization strategy. I wrote a good write up on that. Uh, if People want to check yeah. it out. But you know, we have a robust ecosystem and it's kind of dichotomy where, you know, how many software factories should we have? You know, uh, how many people should be doing their own thing and encouraging adoption within their, you know, department or enterprise or, or programs, et cetera, uh, versus, you know, pushing people to shared services. Uh, and it's and it's interesting because there's no right answer per se, uh, but there's a lot of benefits of re reusing what's been done already. We talked about, you know, security control inheritance and declarative uh, code to reuse and such. Uh, if everyone's doing that uh, in a silo and doing it over and over again, it's just causing a lot of duplicity a lot of wasted uh, money and funding and time and energy where you could just be focusing on higher up the stack and delivering, you know, to your, your stakeholders, you know, your mission. Um, so how do you really in that, you know, that's commodity code, right? So, so that that's where I struggle, I, you know, and some people just love, you know, DevSecOps and they get, you know, in love of the concept and they, they just love doing it and they kind of lose track of, of the bigger picture of the mission that's supposed to be building. Um, and, and you, you mentioned, you know, the, the tension and, you know, some of it is is due of you know to me I guess and my ego and my my way of doing things and you know I own it and you know I think um, at the the difference I would argue with most most others is that I am really not uh, in a situation where I have any kind of conflict of interest when I was in the government coming from industry with zero engagement whatsoever with any of these companies or any of the DoD agencies I had no conflicts whatsoever. It, it's not exactly the same for everybody else, but you know, I think I try to pretty enable everybody to have a a chance to participate and collaborate. In fact, you know, we built uh, the committee of practice for DevSecOps, which was really the largest uh, committee of practice of the entire DoD across all engagements, uh, including you know with NATO and and Five Eye and and um, other agencies outside of of DoD. Um, but I, I'm still you know trying to find okay. You know, I'm going to be back in the government sooner than people think, and probably some people are going to be upset about it, but that's okay. Some people will be happy too. Um, I'm happy if it's 50-50 because that, that demonstrates you're you're doing something. You know, if 100% of people like you, um, usually you're not doing a lot of uh, great things, or at least you're not disrupting much, right? So I'm okay with being 50-50. I, I like it a little bit better, but you know that's okay. But if you look at what people could be doing, right? What what would you advise me, right, going back one day, to to fix to enable teams to collaborate better? Uh, honestly, I think it would, you know, it, it, you know, ego is a play a, a part of that, and like you know, like you said, people tend to either love you or hate you. But at the same time, you know, for everything that can be said, you've made quite an impact. Uh, and I think it's because you were willing to, you know, uh, break some rules or just, you know, kind of break from traditional norms that, that have been established. Uh, but I think if you were to go back, like, honestly, like, we've started to see some better relationships between some of the primary software factories like Platform One and Kessel Run and stuff. I would really try to build on that, you know, across not just uh, Navy and Air Force, but Army as well, uh, and try to build those relationships, that rapport, and build that so How do you convince them? Because I try, like, I, I would argue... I, I, I try like both the, the carrot and the stick and, and, and every every layer above and below, both with me and, and Jason Weiss, who, who honestly, you know, if, if you talk to him openly, he's going to tell you he was also uh, frustrated with the army, for example. But 
you know, what, what would you, what can I do tangibly? Right. Like, how do you go and, and change those people's mind? Because I, I tried it all. I just don't know what could I do to have a different approach. Like, do you lead with, um, you know, join uh, engagements and you, you know, I even proposed, for example, to, to give you a concrete example, I proposed to the army, right. To do a merge team for iron bank because they were complaining that, uh, you know, they didn't have a stay in it. So we, we say, Hey, you know, let's do a joint leadership, join execution team and staff it 50, 50, and just, you know, do a joint engagement for the entire program. And it's just, they just didn't invite, right. There was no interest. So what am I missing? I must be missing something. Um, yeah, so. I mean, you know, I haven't served at the levels of government that you have, but I imagine if, you know, if you're at high enough level, you can drive people towards that kind of collaboration. Uh, but, you know, it, it is going to take, you know, people, we're all at the end of the day, like, you know, tech, like technology aside, it's all people and personalities and relationships uh, and trying to foster those. And, you know, that's not always easy and it's not always possible. Some people will never like you and they'll never want to work with you. Uh, yeah. But I think, you know, I think if everyone can remember at the end of the day why we're doing this, you know, the mission, the warfighter, warfighter. and the national security aspect of it, you know, we can hopefully get past those things and collaborate. Um, but I don't have all the answers on that front, of course. Yeah. You know, some people will never yeah, want to no, work. No one has. You know, people people always judge others, and I'm very good at it too, right? But uh, then you go into someone's shoes and you realize it might not be as easy as people thought. And also people don't have all the data, right? Um, and I've not seen all of the details as to why we got there, right? Um, the good news is uh, when I come back, it's going to be a pretty uh, senior role, much more senior. So uh, one would argue, uh, like you said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to streamline the, the ability to both, uh, you know, convince maybe people to do it uh, proactively, but also use a stick if, uh, if they don't. So that's, uh, that's good. All right. So you talked about the DoD factory. What, what also was interesting, right, is you mentioned uh, the engagements you're doing uh, outside of DoD with the, the .gov side of the house. And, and obviously, I've seen, you know, dozens of teams starting to embrace, uh, you know, DevSecOps from uh, the VA to IRS to DOJ to, you know, DHS and more, uh, FDIC and, and whatever else. Uh, but you have a pretty exciting engagement that you've been working on. Uh, and, and, and the good news is, you know, while they're not completely reusing everything we do, and that's okay, uh, there is definitely some reuse and, and it's, it's moving pretty well. So tell us a little bit about what you've been seeing outside of DoD as well. Yeah, like I mentioned, I'm working on a, a program at CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, that falls underneath HHS. And they have some really great uh, forward-thinking uh, leaders there on the technology front, like their CISO, Rob Wood, and their CIO, Rajiv, and others uh, within the organization, and some great partners you know, I have on the industry side. And we are reusing a good bit of uh, Big Bang, and we're using you know, Iron Bank containers for Big Bang core components. Uh, but it's interesting, too, because you know every organization, every agency has a different mission. Uh, for example, they're yeah, on the yeah. federal civilian side, so... You know, they're a little bit uh, more uh, lenient when it comes to cloud adoption and using cloud native services, for example, from certain providers, because, you know, on the DOD side, you have to be portable. Yes, that's the same. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you have, you that's have what you do, right? You adjust to the, to the risk and the mission. Yeah. Yeah. On the DOD side, obviously, portability is much more critical. You have, you know, forward deployment. Yeah, forward they don't have embedded systems and jets to worry about. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. good. I'll take <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's been a unique experience in the sense that we've been able to lean into some maybe ser uh, you know service offerings or third-party services that maybe weren't available on the DoD side due to the rigorous you yeah. know we can go down the rabbit hole of the DoD SRG and the whole you know that whole uh, process, but uh, we, you know that really, first thing you know, I, I'll fix you know that's uh, that's the number one the SRG you know that's yeah. it. You, by the way, yeah. you fix that you fix a lot of things just with one document. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because we always hear from senior leadership, you know, whether it's the Jake or, you know, DOD CIO and all these other folks, you know, how critical cloud is for DOD and mission, uh, you know, national security, things like that, innovation. Uh, but we have this cumbersome bureaucratic process that really limits how much, you know, cloud native innovation can reach the warfighter and the mission owner. Uh, it really is a massive drag. You know, if you look at something that comes out in the commercial space, by the time it goes through FedRAMP and then DOD SRG, you're talking several years uh, before it can get to the hands of the warfighter. Uh, so I think if we can make that process better, streamline that process, you know, whether through things like OSCAL and other, you know, avenues, uh, you know, it would help a ton in terms of getting innovative capabilities to the warfighter and the mission owner. Yeah, we'll talk, uh, we'll talk about OSCAL and, and all the kind of the compliance as code. It's, it's going to be game changing, right? I think it's really going to be, I'm so proud of the work that, that the NIST team has done and, and I'm still helping them now because I really believe in it. I've been um, leading a, a, a kind of a, an engagement on the nonprofit side where we're going to be bringing, you know, kind of a repository of, of packages, not just, you know, like we do for Iron Bank for containers, but in this case, it would have not not just the, the full SBOM, uh, but also the full mapping of the NIST controls, you know, scale uh, for commercial products and open source products so they can just be consumed, you know, automatically and, and seamlessly. And it's going to remove the kind of the barrier to entry of, of the certificate to field and, and kind of the, 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 the entire uh, compliance nightmare. So I think that's going to be... Uh, it's gonna be pretty cool, but uh, you know we, we have to convince companies to be more transparent. And, and you've seen me uh, get pretty heated, you know, with uh, companies like Atlassian. You know, people think I'm being paid uh, to go after those guys, but that's obviously not the case. I I'm just I care about uh, security, and I, I gave them a lot of chances to to, to address their 1,400 CVEs. And uh, you know the the, the most recent uh, news was uh, Atlassian uh, getting breached, and and of course the I2E got breached um, because of that CVE and, and the, you know, that, 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 that impacts so many programs and putting a critical, um, you know, CUI and, and alpha and five uh, data at risk. And, and, you know, I, I told people we shouldn't let it uh, be internet facing, you know, platform one moved it behind the, uh, the cloud native access point very early and people complained, you know, and were mad at me for doing this. But, but the fact is if they knew how bad, you know, the, the cyber uh, state of Atlassian was, you know, they, they would understand. But how do you how do you find the right you know balance, I guess, you know, between uh, kind of cyber and the velocity, you know, and then I'll, I'll tell you a little story after you, you give me your answer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a difficult challenge, you know, because you got to align with the organization's risk tolerance. But you also don't want to, like, as I talked about, you know, really drag down and uh you know, stifle the innovative capabilities getting to the program offices and the warfighter and such. Uh, so just trying to, you know, I think having a lot of standardization around how we do this, automating as much as we can, like you talked about OSCAL and things like that. Uh, I think getting software, uh, supply chain security, transparency, like SBOM and things of that nature will help us automate a lot of the review process and just determining the risk associated with software. Uh, you know, a yeah. lot of those things can lead into the, the benefits that we're trying to seek of just streamlining that whole process. Uh, of while you know uh, consuming things in, a, in a, a pace of relevance, but also in a secure fashion too. Yeah, and you you know what what bugs me too, right? Is is kind of this this need of of this uh, to come up with additional controls, right? With the uh, uh, the federal process not being good enough, despite the fact that duty uh, CIO is sitting on the board of, of FedRAMP with DHS and GSA, right? And then we end up uh, not not accepting full reciprocity. Of the FedRAMP process, I mean, either you fix the controls in FedRAMP, or you, you, I mean, you do something about it, but you don't create kind of a, a shadow IT assessment process, right? With, uh, like you said, the, the DISA having to wait first for FedRAMP, and then oh, now you have to do all these other controls if you want to do work for DoD at L4 and five, and 
And by the way, none of this addresses uh, anything when it comes to the classified side of the clouds. And, you know, there's this, this balance. You know, I always remember the, the conversation I had with some of the DoD uh, CIO teams where they were, they were so focused on cyber, they were forgetting about the need to compete and be able to get stuff done, right? And, and back to the balance between velocity and, and security, I told them, I said, you know, I, I'm worried about the DoD getting hacked. And I, I would argue, despite what you would think is um, a, a pretty um, annoying uh, accreditation process, I would argue our system are, see, uh, are still very much insecure. So I'm not sure you're getting to the outcome you're, you're trying to achieve anyways. But 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 I also said I'm, I'm pretty worried about getting hacked, but I'm actually more worried that one day we're going to wake up and realize that no one is trying to hack us because we're irrelevant and no one cares. That would be probably a biggest problem than than getting hacked. Yeah, I think a lot of people in the security domain, you know, on the, on the federal, like the public sector side of things on the commercial side, like there's, you know, there's, you can go out of business, right? If you are not viable, if you don't, if you don't compete in the market, you go away uh, on the public yeah, sector yeah. side of things, you know, we have the ability to really slow things to a halt because we're funded by Congress and such, and, you know, uh, the taxpayer. Uh, so there's not really a, a, a bias to get to the market to compete and have a fair and open competition per se. Uh, so on the federal side, I think cybersecurity, a lot of times, you know, we think of everything as, uh, must be secure. But as you mentioned, I think that failing to innovate, failing to stay relevant is a risk. And I think cybersecurity practitioners on the public in the public sector never really think of it from that perspective. Uh, you know, we got to meet these right, controls. Right. We got to check these boxes. Uh, but what if we what if we've done all that? But we're you know decades behind our adversaries at some point because we've dragged everything to a grinding halt. Yeah. And you're still insecure because honestly, the, the boxes you're checking are not making you secure. They're just making you compliant. <laughs> you know, so that, yeah. I'm not sure that it's getting to any of the outcomes we actually need. Well, not only the fire, but the citizen. And you know, when you when you look back, right, the, the issue, of course, is we're not in a, in an ongoing uh, constant uh, fight with the peer adversary, particularly with China. Um, so we don't really know how well or not well we're doing. Uh, unlike the commercial side, you know, they they obviously uh, see the competition in real time, you know, multiple times a day, and end up winning or losing bids and, and whatnot. We don't we don't see the impact yet until it's too late. But when it's too late, you pay the price of not just lives, uh, but you could potentially put the entire nation at risk. And so it, it's no joke, right? And and yet yet you you've seen the complacency, right? And, and and kind of the 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 concept of hey that that that's that's the way we've always done it. And and as you know, the the velocity of IT has accelerated such that uh, you know what used to work and and take a few years. Is is now a non-starter, right? How do you how do you reinvent yourself and, and keep up with what's going on? I know, you know, I, I used to give an hour a day for people to learn, and that's why I'm doing all these videos and this content because I I feel like this is probably the biggest uh, investment of my time I could, you know, do to give back to people so they learn and know what's going on and keep up with what's going on. How do you do it? How do you because you you at the top of the the spear. And you manage to do all this stuff and learn. And so how do you how do you tell people what to do and how to learn? Uh, so I, I don't tell people how to learn per se, but for me personally, like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a very disciplined person. I have been like, you know, even before I went into the military. So I'm very habit oriented, you know, and learning yeah. is just part of my daily routine. If a day goes by where I'm not learning, I feel uncomfortable and I'm not, you know, happy with myself. Yeah. Like learning is just part of what I do in a daily 
in a daily experience in my life. Uh, so I'm always trying to read. I'm always trying to lab. I'm always trying to, you know, watch videos, podcasts, conversations like these and learn things from other people and hear what they're having success with, what their challenges are, you know, those kind of things. I think, uh, you know, in this career field, uh, things move very quickly, as you know, even without even without the bureaucracy and things like that, you know, things move very quickly. And if you're not learning, if you're not trying to stay relevant, you know, your career is going to stagnate. And then in a more broader context, you know, on a macro level, like you said, nationally, we could stagnate. And, uh, you know, national security front, I think that we do have this uh, you know level of comfort because we have been uh, a world power. You know, we haven't really had a traditional confrontation with another superpower in that context in quite a while. Uh, so we've gotten very comfortable of, of where we are and we don't realize necessarily how far we're falling behind. And I think leadership, it, you know, for, for some folks like me, it's kind of frustrating because you always hear leadership say the right things. Uh, every year we have another study, <laughs> another audit, another, you know, a report. about we how the we study. It's very effective, you know. Yeah, we, we study the hell out of the problem, but we never actually do anything to fix it. And it gets very frustrating. And, and especially for people like, you know, like me doing the work on the ground, I want to see some changes at a higher level uh, to really empower us as a nation to succeed. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I finally understood after I left the government, maybe a little too late, uh, why we do more studies and why, you know, we don't get things done. Uh, and and there's, there's definitely some people that don't want to take any risk. And, and you know, they, 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 they talk the talk and don't walk the walk. But there's the other side, which is honestly just, you know, great people that are putting jobs that are really where they have no experience or background on or any understanding of the subject matter. And because we believe somehow that, oh, that's okay, because it's just about managing people, uh, particularly when it comes to the material leader and se senior material leader inside of the PEO shops, those those people uh, effectively end up, you know, managing people, but don't understand the subject matter expertise enough to make the right decisions or guide the train. And so they end up doing a lot of studies because they need to have a lot of data to be able to make those decisions. And, and it's kind of a vicious cycle, right? Um, and, and then we end up, you know, with like, uh, you know, all these programs that we created, like ITAS, where I started in DOD, you know, the Air Force was talking about ITAS and, and, and okay, you know, we just did the award, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the bid uh, this year, but, but I started, you know, almost four years ago, we're already talking about ITAS and, and, and the first two and a half, three years were, you know, risk reduction efforts. And I was like, what is a risk reduction effort? What risk are we re re trying to reduce here? But I, I finally understood, right? They, they just didn't know what to do. So it's like, okay, we're gonna see what sticks, and we're gonna we're gonna try a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you know, see what what's what ends up working. And 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 I can tell you, the, the problems we're we're trying to solve with ITAS are the the basics one of one one of life on the commercial side. Every company has to figure it out on the planet. There's just no complexity, no unknown. I mean, the DoD makes it a little bit more complex, but it's not uh, it's negligible. Uh, I could have gone in and in, in two weeks make the decisions and let them run the stuff and, and be done. Uh, but there was no one, you know, willing to do it. And, uh, and and that's what you see. You know, it's just the, this kind of fear of, of making mistakes. And and honestly, you you're never um, you're never at risk. Your job is never at risk for not taking a chance and failing. It's only at risk if you if you did something a little bit outside the norm. And then you felt so. So most people are not going to put their career at risk. And you know we're barely paying these people market value at all. You know, probably half of market value. And then we want them to take risk, and then we want them to do all this stuff, right? But how is that fair to the people, right? 
Yeah, it's a really interesting and multifaceted like problem that you just laid out is like, you know, there's a lot of things that you touched on. Like one is, uh, you know, the kind of fix our computers thing. Uh, it's really hard to, you know, uh, DOD and the federal government has a notorious issue with attracting and retaining technical talent. And it's really hard to do that when you don't even have basic IT services and systems that can function, you know, like they would in the commercial side. And then also like the workforce aspect, you know, we have an exponential number of, and I think only one of six IT professionals in the federal government is under 30 years old. Uh, like there's an age issue, not that all, you know, age dictates like technical competence, but obviously that does play a part to some extent. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that we need to get younger leadership, uh, younger, eager, uh, you know, leadership that are willing to take chances, willing to do things differently, you know, into leadership roles where they can drive and make an impact. And then, you know, get people that have technical competence and background in these things into leadership roles, too, uh, so that they understand, like, the decisions that they're doing. You know, they have actual practical experience in that. Uh, I know I see it on the cybersecurity side a lot of times, like there's, you know, regulations and policies coming out. And it's been written by, you know, aides or, you know, staffers and so on that don't really have any cybersecurity background. And then you end up with a lot of Disco, you know, uh, you know, discoherent, incoherent, you know, kind of policies and processes and regulations, uh, and it just really creates a lot of uh, a bureaucratic nightmare, you know, on the ground. And do you feel like we're still focusing on the wrong? I mean, you know, the fact that we're still talking about carrier tracks, where I I briefed, you know, uh, maybe three DevSecDev on uh, the solutions we had in mind to solve the talent problem of software and, and data science and, and AI. And now we see, you know, the NDAA and, and Congress show up and talk about, you know, creating a, a career track for AI, but not addressing software cloud and, and, and data, right? So, so how do you get to it? AI is magic. I mean, you should know that AI is magical. You know, it's just going to magically, uh, you know, work. Uh, it doesn't need cloud. It doesn't need, you know, software. It's just magic. Uh, that's how poorly you know Congress is educated on, on the subject, and and you know we're not we're not solving and building that strong foundation, right? It's just not going to work. Uh, how do you feel like when you see um, you know a lot of the the government people end up leaving, right? Um, you've seen obviously me, but but others, right? Uh, Jason Weiss, Preston Dunlap, and always you know uh, David Spurk, right? Uh, um, you know uh, 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 Brown, the 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 DIU, you know, director and, and all these people. Uh, oh, oh, most of them had pretty alarming things to say. I wasn't the only crazy guy. I guess I was the first one. But after after I did it, I, I maybe maybe more people felt like uh, they could uh, they could say what they really believed. Uh, but how do you feel between you know you, you see people leaving? Are they getting replaced? Do you feel like we're we're, we're losing some of the top cover we used to have to help those people get? get this DevSecOps stuff done. You're Dr. Roper. Everybody is gone. You know, I mean, really, we, all, we only have Lauren left. And, you know, what, what happens when she goes? Do, do, are you concerned about, about kind of the, the lack of leadership that understand the, the problem? Yeah, I'm definitely concerned as like a citizen and a former service member, a veteran, like, you know, the father of four children. It's very concerning. You know, I think that we need to, you know, if we have this many people leaving, like you mentioned, like we've seen a whole slew of them all saying similar things. Uh, we need people at the higher levels of leadership to take a look and say, OK, maybe we have a systemic problem. Uh, you know, with the way we're doing things, it's not this individual per se. Maybe we have a broader issue, uh, but really it's going to take uh, leadership with competence and courage to make the, the changes necessary to fix things. Uh, and it's really discouraging when you see people leaving and, and saying that they think they can make a bigger impact on the outside than on the inside. Uh, you know, it kind of speaks volumes in terms of like, you know, how broken the system is, because, you know, if you're on the inside, you're a senior key uh, leader, you should have uh, the authority and autonomy to make quite an impact. Uh, so it is very discouraging and I hope we can fix it. 
Uh, but, you know, I think it's definitely a difficult problem, too. Yeah, you know, when you look at the complexity and the breadth of the problem, right, um, I was doing a list, you know, for SecAF and SecDev of, of my recommendations, right, um, on how to fix some of that stuff. And it, it kind of touches everything. I mean, all the way to Congress, right? And maybe we should think again about term limits. I mean, I think most Americans agree with term limits, but of course, they're never going to do it because that's not their best interest. But, you know, how do we how do we get to uh, to a state where, um, you know, the DOD CIO is a policy shop, Air Force CIO, unfortunately, is also mostly a policy governance shop. Um, they, they don't have really a way to tell the PEOs how to build uh, the enterprise IT services and how to run. They, they can kind of set expectations, but it's, 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 it's anecdotal compared to the, the contract ex execution and running, running the, the work. You, you, you don't see this on the commercial side, right? A CIO on the commercial side is managing the teams, doing operations and doing development and, and getting stuff done but that's not the case here i don't know how we solve it right because now you need to have the acquisition teams uh empowered with the right leadership and the contracting side and you know the um the the, the cio shops and it and and so it's 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 a multifaceted answer and and it, it, not just one person can come and solve the problem um including at pretty significant high uh, high uh, jobs because you take DOCIO, they can write a bunch of policies. I mean, sure, I could fix the, the cloud SLG, but the CIO doesn't really buy stuff. And now, you know, with the uh, chief uh, digital AI office, um, they lost the, the data side. They lost, uh, uh, you know, Jake and, and uh, the defense digital service is now part of the CDAO. I had, I had pushed for software and cloud and zero trust to be moved also uh, to the CDAO so you can actually solve the actual problem because I don't know how you get to AI if, if you don't have a cloud and, and a zero trust enforcement stack. But, you know, um, so, so and you see this, uh, you know, delaying these contracts again and again. And, and at some point, that's why people don't believe in enterprise services and they move on and build stuff in vacuum. So so we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. And, and I guess my, my whole point is to say, you know, we're going to need a bunch of people to come and fix this. It's not going to be just one person. Yeah, it's definitely not something that one person can fix. And I have seen, some, you know, people, uh, you know, maybe that come from the commercial side, make comments on LinkedIn, like, you know, just really negative comments about public sector and federal government service and things like that. And how you should just go to commercial side. Uh, but, it, you know, the reality is if everyone, you know, if every innovative, impactful leader took that perspective and just left, imagine what that okay. would leave us with as a nation, you know, when it comes to national security, uh, citizen services, you know, things like that, social services. Uh, so I'm glad that some people decide to stick around and try to fight the good fight to make an impact because our future as a nation depends on it. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, people are very short-sighted, right? I think that's kind of the issue, too, when you, you live in the bubble of, of the commercial side. And maybe I was a little bit of the same, but I kind of understood the importance. That's why I wanted to go and serve after setting my company, right? Um, but but really, you know, I, I it, it's, it's we're just educating kids to, to, to hate America and hate, you know, the military. And I remember going to KubeCon, right, and, and waiting. Uh, there was like 2,000 people. That was the, 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 the most uh, attended uh uh, keynote of, of the entire event, uh, my, my keynote on, on, you know, how do we, did we put the uh, Cubanese on F-16 jets? And after there was a bunch of people waiting to shake my hands and that's great. And, and then you have probably six or seven of those that, that waited in line. And, and, and then when they get to me, they're like, Oh, I'm not going to shake your hands. It's covered in blood because you kill babies with jets. You know I mean? It, it's the kind of stuff. And it's the same, you know, uh, you know, kids because they're kids, uh, that that you know uh, enjoy the the freedom of 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 what the wolf fighter are, are 
sacrificing themselves uh, to to give us, and, and they just don't understand it. You know, they they're in the Silicon Valley bubble. You know, and then one told me they had to uh, they had to leave the the, the keynote uh, to go spend time in the in the puppy room to to get some uh, some help from the, you know, because there's a puppy room. You know, you can go and pet dogs, right? And they had to go and, and pet a, a, a few dogs because she was she was traumatized by by the fact that the, the DoD was using open source uh, tools and then they, they wanted to change the, the open source uh, uh, you know, terms and conditions and you know licenses to not allow the, the DoD to have access to open source, which kind of defeat the point of, of open source because that's kind of the, the point of, of IP. But they, maybe they need some lawyer uh, education too. But uh, how do you deal, how do we educate people, right? Because that's kind of, I can tell you, right? The new, um, the new, the new generation of, of data scientists and, and and stuff like that, they they completely refuse to even help a tiny bit uh, DoD whatsoever. I mean, maybe they're going to help HHS what, and, and stuff like that. They they're certainly not going to help DHS. Certainly not going to help DOJ. Certainly not going to help you know DoD. How do we educate them on, on what that means to not have a, a strong military and a strong uh, national security defense? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for everyone's ethical or moral, you know, uh, perspective. But for me, like, I think it, we need to help ensure people understand, like, just how critical uh, national security is uh, when it comes to having a thriving economy. Uh, you look at these, you know, they go to tech and they and they they love those environments and they get to do innovative work and things like that. Uh, but our economy and our national security are inextricably tied together. Uh, if we don't have a strong national security and and you know uh, national superiority against adversaries, for example, it's going to be very difficult to have a strong economy. And the two are very closely tied together. And I, I will say, you know, we've seen some tech companies, you know, show aversion to working with DOD, but luckily some of them have changed their mind recently. I've seen that in the headlines, for example, uh, and their leadership has showed support for DOD and the federal government. And I think people are realizing, like, you know, without a strong government, without a strong military, without, you know, uh, national security, it's going to be really hard to have uh, success in the economic side of things, you know, so I think that they're tied together and we need to make sure people understand that. Yeah, and it's, look, it's deterrence, right? We never want to use it, right? But we need to have it. I think it's pretty common sense. But also, people, you know, crack me up is is when they they have no problem w working with China. <laughs> it's it's just like you guys have never been there, you've never traveled, you don't know the world. Like go to Venezuela, go to places like this, come back and tell me uh, how much we we struggle. You know, I think if if people uh, were able to to see more of the world, I think they would come back here and be like, yeah, we're not that bad. You know, we can. We can tell you improve a lot of things, uh, but we're by far the best nation in the world, and, and people need to realize that. And it's just it's just sad that that you have to have you know I guess an immigrant like me uh, tell uh, you know uh, native I guess uh, born uh, American born in in the U.S. Uh, that kind of stuff. I find it to be a little bit uh, uh, mind boggling. You know, it's just it's just what it is, I guess. But let's talk a little bit about um, you know your work that you've done on the Dugov side. How did, did, did you have to convince people to reuse some of the work you've done, we've done in DoD or were they proactively seeking it or did you feel like you had to uh, sell them on the on the concept? 
Uh, so I will say, you know, some others were involved, uh, many folks that you know very well in terms of companies and individuals, uh, but it didn't take too much convincing because I think a lot of the federal government, you know, for, for much has been said about the DOD and all the problems we just laid out, uh, the DOD is innovating in a lot of ways. If you're being invited to speak at KubeCon and, you know, you know, open source security conferences, things like that, people are paying attention to what the DOD is doing in the software factory space. For example, we just saw uh, the CNCF publish a secure software factory reference architecture. It looks very similar to the DevSecOps reference architecture that, you know, the DOD has implemented. Uh, across different agencies or different programs, I should say. Uh, and I think the federal civilian agencies have been paying attention and just seeing, you know, what some of the work that's being done at the platform on the Castle Run, the other, you know, software factory ecosystems across DOD. Uh, and I think they're starting to pay attention and see that, you know, this is the way of the future to build a, a secure, you know, robust platform, you know, containerized environment, et cetera, uh, that they can take advantage of. So they've been willing to use, you know, uh, core components of Big Bang, uh, you know, pre-hardened containers from Iron Bank um, and lean into some of those things that have been, uh, you know, hard lessons learned, honestly, that weren't easy and yeah. took quite a lot of time and investment. Uh, so, you know, we didn't have to do much selling in that context, uh, but it is a cultural change. Like, as you can attest from Platform One, uh, you know, just teaching people to do things differently and have a different way of operating is, you know, always a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the learning, right? That's why I think, honestly, the biggest struggle we have is going to be uh, empowering people to learn and the self-learning aspect. And that's why I'm going to be focusing a lot of my time on this curriculum. I'm creating for um, you know managers and, and non-technical people, <laughs> but honestly, when I give it to technical people, they still like it because they are a little bit behind and and they catch up, and, and that's good too, right? But um, you know, the, the curriculum is is you know the the, the learning really empowering learning is going to be so important, right? And 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 it's not just like you said uh, the uh, the catching up; it's also the 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 keeping up to date and not getting behind and. And, and ideally, you want you want to be leading. You know, I'm always surprised when I see people say, you know, uh, China is is catching up to us, and it seems like we're okay with it. You know, we, we should be like Tesla, right? They, they're giving away the patents because they're moving so fast that they know that by the time you know people start uh, uh, using those patents, they're going to be miles away ahead, and and people can catch up. Um, and and we should be the same in DoD, right? We're spending way more money than everybody else. Uh, but but we we're not moving at the same velocity. In fact, I would argue when I talk to NATO uh, nations and Five I uh, that have way less money. I was I was talking to the five star joint uh, in France that's running cyber and space and army stuff, and he told me you know the entire uh, budget of the uh, uh, equivalent of DoD in France is fifty billion, uh, which is uh, you know what we spent we spent sixty billion in software. In duty just in software that's the entire uh defense budget and, and guess what you know they they get stuff done and, and maybe there's less waste you know I, that, that there's one thing to be said about uh bloated and and and, and bureaucracy and and you know uh when you have too much money you just you just become this massive uh you know organization that that's just uh uh i've seen it even with software factories right when you become too big right you, there is a point where it just doesn't work, right? Eighty percent of the work is is done by twenty percent of the people. You, you've seen that too, right? Yeah, it's kind of the Pareto principle. I think it kind of right. it's, it's pervasive everywhere, you know, music or yeah. any, any kind of a creative endeavor almost. Um, but yeah, no, I think uh, it goes back to the luxury that we talked about of it being a, a you know world power and having the national superiority we do against many nations in, in terms of defense and things like that. Uh, we get comfortable with wasting quite a bit. Uh, and that's why you have fiefdoms and, you know, people building in silos and not collaborating and a lot of weight, uh, waste and fraud and abuse, uh, you know, in many places. And then also like our whole system is kind of 
uh, misincentivized in a lot of ways. We have the same traditional players, you know, you know winning all the mm-hmm. work, but not really delivering things in many cases. Uh, you know, people often talk about that. Um, yeah. And I think there's something to be said, like you talked about in terms of budgets, you know, when you don't have much, you have to learn to be resourceful. Uh, we have plenty and we've gotten used to being just, you know, being wasteful. And I think, uh, you know, that's a big problem that we need to try and address. Yeah. I tell people we probably waste 90 cents on the dollar in duty. That's my take, you know, probably 60% of that is wasted just through acquisition nonsense, you know, and, and it's funny how all this stuff was created to prevent waste. You know, it's always, you know, and I've seen it so many times where good ideas get turned into nightmares of policy, you know, including some of my ideas. I remember when, uh, you know, I pushed the, the country's ATO uh, memo. Uh, so it would be official, you know, from the DOD CIO standpoint, uh, because it was really an Air Force Space Force construct. And so we created a bunch of documentation, tried to explain people, uh, at the DSOG and this uh, what it was and you know did many engagements with DOD CIO and then there's a new DOD CISO coming with a new administration and he likes the concept and great and he ends up signing the memo which is great except they added a little sentence saying that uh, every every continuous ATO must go through him first to be approved which was never uh, part of the equation and and, and it's, it's kind of funny right because that team has never ever uh, done a continuous ATO and yet you're saying now we have to go through you including air force programs that have done it for for four years and you have no background or expertise in it and and so why would we go through you i mean you should go through us you know uh, it, it's it's easy how you know great ideas or good concepts gets you know with one sentence completely destroyed and becomes uh, uh, uh actually a problem uh as as opposed to to a part of the solution yeah, I mean, we, t- we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think we should be trying to empower folks and decentralize things to the extent possible, you know, like pushing everything back up to that single entity to try to review and approve everything is just not scalable. Um, yeah. and, you know, if we want to empower continuous ATO across the, uh, the department, you know, it's going to have to be something that's pushed down to, you know, the AO at the more regional or local, you know, programmatic level, because uh, it's not going to be something that one entity can do at scale. Uh, you know, I think yeah. we need to set some guardrails of what it is, how it should work, how it should look, and then let people run with that. Uh, yeah, you know, and we had the guardrails in the in the documentation. That's what's even more crazy. You know, we we actually set the stage to not need to do that because of those guardrails. Yeah, I think just having that codified and communicated uh, would have been good enough for like, kind of reining it into one one entity that can you know, say yes or no to everything. And uh, as you talked about, like moving into an entity that's never really done it doesn't make much sense. You know, you want to learn from the people that have done this, have innovated, have led the way on this. You know, the other programs that have done this, the Castle Runs, the Platform Ones, and so on. Yeah. Um, you know, learn I mean, from honestly, that. it's all Danny Holzman. You know, Danny Holzman is the only AO already in DoD that has understood and executed uh, the CATOs of all these teams. So he's awesome. Yeah, yeah I saw I saw a talk with him recently, and he's definitely got some good insights of you know having been in the trenches and having facilitated some of the early continuous ATOs that we've been uh, you know seen signed uh, into operation. But, but you wanna you wanna know something funny? I, I think people are gonna have a heart attack. Guess what? The the Air Force and Space Force. I've not found a way to extend Danny. And so his HQE is going to, is going to expire in October and he's going to have to leave. And there's zero plan to replace him as an AO. There is no other AO train on CATOs. Um, there's over 50 programs, including F35 and GBSD and, and platform one and cloud one and, and Kessler run and, and whatever else, uh, and LCU and ABMS and SAP programs. Completely depending on Danny, and the answer is no answer. 
<laughs> so, you know, this is just like, I don't even know what to do anymore when I'm, I'm sending emails to SecAF and I say, you know, Hey, you know, that if you lose Danny, you're not going to be able to, which is kind of scary, right? We should probably not be in a situation where we still depend on, on one person. I get it. But, but the fact is we all, whether we like it or not, I felt the same. I felt, Oh, I'm so, you know, when I left, you know, there was, we did a list of the stuff I was doing and, and then my leadership came back and said, you know, this is, this is what 17 SCS, we would need 17 SCS to replace you. I was like, why? I'm just one person. Uh, this is just, it's just too much work. <laughs> and, and, and then of course they dropped most of the work. They didn't actually put 17. In fact, they didn't even replace me whatsoever, but, but they actually dropped the work. So, so, so they say software matters, but then there was no replacement and the, the, all this work of like join engagement with OSD and DODCIO and, and this, uh, uh, went down, down the, the, the trash. And, and then you start to see more memo, you know, pushing more OSD nonsense. And, you know, when you start not having good re representation in these meetings, you'll be shocked at the stuff I prevented from happening. You know, a lot of people talk about the stuff I achieved in the department, but they don't know the stuff I prevented from happening. <laughs> that was bad stuff, you know, uh, by, by being there. Um, which one might debate which one is more impactful, but I can tell you, uh, I my 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 take on 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 all, all these policies and, and pushing some of these memos, I've 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 changed because I've seen how they can be turned on their head and, and become uh, the problem instead of being the solution. Yeah, I mean we have a we have a real bad habit of you know uh, you know putting things in the policy or a, a compliance right, and then and then just that's what we work towards versus versus actual impact in many places, uh, many cases, I'm sorry. Uh, and yeah. it is unfortunate to hear that about Danny. I think that, that you know, kind of touches on the whole retention uh, t topic that we discussed. And like, also we shouldn't be having robust training to train other AOs uh, of how, yeah. doing, you know, how, how are these people having these level of success? How are they doing these kind of things? Uh, and I did want to give a shout out to Matt Houston, who I recently met with yeah. and worked with at Platform One. He's a very sharp individual. And I hope that he stays in the ecosystem because he's someone that really gets it as well. Yeah, it's, it's probably going to have to help uh, when Danny leaves, honestly, because he's it's, it's probably the only one uh, that can do some of that work, although he's, he's just an AODR today, so he's not a full AO, but that, so Lauren will have to change that. Uh, but I can tell you, you know, the, the other problem is quite honestly, the, the AOs are often, you know, mandated to be SCSs and very, very few, if any, are technical at all. Yeah, And, that, and that, so uh... you don't find a Danny, you know. Yeah, that, that goes back to what we talked about of having people in the position who actually have the relevant ex experience, you know, like if you're going to be signing off the risk of a technical system, you should be technical and understand the, te the you know, the technologies involved, the processes, the tools, etc. Because uh, it's really hard to determine the risk of a system if you don't even understand how the system works, you know, what technologies it's using and things like that. Uh, and that's yeah, they, they rely on their teams. I mean, I can tell you, AEOs don't make the, the, the they, they, they have to rely on the, 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 the teams. Uh, of the the SCAS and, and ISSMs to, to give us the documentation and it, it's a compliance exercise. It's not a it should be a risk assessment, right? And understanding the actual risk, but but it's not. It's just checking boxes. And, and the computate two is such a different approach that that they struggle with that, right? They they don't understand the concept of continuous anything, uh, let alone you know uh, looking at dashboards of real time risk assessment and seeing the actual real time risk of. Uh, of software and infrastructure and platform and reuse of code. And, 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 and honestly, Danny has been um, really thinking outside the box to get this done. And these, um, you know, back to Brian's point here, some discussions about him maybe collaborating with DODCIO, but I can tell you if, if he does, or if he joins 
the CIO and lead the, the CATO effort, that's not going to really help the Air Force because let's face it, you know, when someone is really a part of a, of an OSD shop, they don't they don't continue doing uh, program level uh, service work. They're not going to let that happen. So so how are we going to replace, you know, uh, uh, the AO for, for the 40 most important programs on the planet? Um, that that you know that's just just mind boggling to me that wins a situation where I'm bringing it up because I actually want to raise awareness, and people are fully um, are going to wake up and realize because I know we have a lot of um, pretty high level people joining the show, including several undersecretaries and and, and different kind of um, um, appointed um, roles listening. So so I hope they understand that uh, you know this is the kind of stuff that can break us like for real like this this is not something you recover from um and and i struggle as to how you know an organization that's supposed to be you know designed around resiliency and and, and scale right gets to that state i i i felt also like maybe it was my ego and maybe that's true but i felt like i was i was doing so much stuff and you know there was no one to replace me and it was a lot of stress it was a lot of you know probably why i stayed a little bit longer than i would have uh, because I felt like, you know, I was dropping the ball if I was going to leave, you know. Uh, but then you got to a point where it was just too toxic for me and, and for the department. But, you know, I think how do we solve that that talent problem? I can tell you the HQE model is is a great uh, avenue to do that. But, um, you know, um, in in Danny's use case, they just failed at, at doing something pretty simple. So so that that, that leads me to believe that it's not just, um, it cannot be incompetence because, you know, the, the guy is in the job. So then it's it's about going back to the status quo and going back to to before. I, I can tell you a lot of the work that Dr. Oprah has done, including, you know, hiring me and, and Preston Dunlap and creating a chief architect and, and a chief software office has been completely erased um, after, you know, the new administration started because, it was a uh, no. We we are not gonna you know we don't like Doctor Roper and we're not gonna uh, keep any of the stuff he's done, even if it was good stuff. Um, that's a very you know that, that's why you know the the, the, the turnover of, of administrations and politics in all this this game is just hurting uh, the duty so much. Yeah, I mean the just to touch on a couple of things you said, like the polarization at the political level is, is very damaging. You know, I think we're losing sight of the bigger picture and, and, and being one unified nation with, you know, one overarching goal. Uh, and then it happens within the department too, among different, uh, you know, uh, uh, service branches and things like that. And, uh, you know, touching on the AO concept, like it's unfortunate that we may lose him. Uh, but I've also experienced that issue across all levels underneath them. You talked about how the folks underneath them inform them. Uh, you know, I've authorized many cloud systems in different environments. And, you know, many times the AODR, the SCAR, the SCA, the ISSO, the ISSM, a lot of those folks don't have familiarity with, uh, you know, uh, cloud native systems, DevSecOps, because yep. uh, they spend most of their time in Excel. Uh, and PowerPoint and things like that. They don't get an opportunity to work with the actual development and operations teams mm -hmm. and understand understand the technologies. Uh, so I think we need, you know, we need broad uh, broad training across that entire you know uh, cybersecurity ecosystem when it comes to authorizing systems to actually understand the modern technologies involved uh, and better empower those AOs at the top to make those decisions. So you know what you just um, you know just gave me the idea of you know my next course after I finish this forty five segments of. Joe transformation and, and DevSecOps. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a whole. I I have one segment of the 45 on continuous ATO. You know, it's, it's not bad, but it's not deep dive. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to focus on creating the right training for the SCAs and ISSMs and 
and all the way to the AOs to, to understand CompuSafety and understand modern cyber uh, principles. You know, I think that's that's actually a great idea. So um, I'll I'll make sure to partner with you at least let you let you give us insights on uh, on this stuff because of course with your background, it's exactly the kind of feedback we need to to create the right content. Yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, give a plug. It's not DOD or government specific, but definitely check out the Cloud Security Alliance uh, CCAK. Yeah, it's yeah. A, you know, yeah, cloud certification yeah. for auditors because uh, there's a big gap among the auditing and uh, you know assessment community when it comes to cloud and DevSecOps, and they've done a great job of really you know teaching those concepts you know in a way that uh, it, it relates to the auditor and it's technical enough you know without necessarily being way down the weeds beyond their you know beyond their right, job right. and responsibility too. Yeah, and CSL is really doing a good job. So I'm, I'm glad you're involved in a lot of that stuff because I, I was always pretty impressed with the publications and the stuff they've been pushing uh, for the last many years. So this is this is good stuff. So we need to talk about um, software uh, supply chain a little bit because uh, obviously that's a hot topic uh, between the risk management side and, and the supply chain and software bill of materials. So in your opinion, when you see what's happening, what should we do about about both of these kind of hot topics yes yeah, it's, it's definitely a, an interesting problem and it's not necessarily a new phenomenon but i think it's something that you know we're starting to pay more attention to as an industry and i think it's because malicious actors are also paying more attention to it <laughs> uh, i think there was like a spike of 300 percent in the last year of software supply chain attacks and i think it's because you know, malicious actors realize that instead of targeting one uh, entity they can target you know an entity and have a cascading <laughs> impact across the entire ecosystem uh, yeah. and we are seeing you know some really promising things you know the white house held, held a open source software security summit in january uh, we just had open ssf publish their open source uh, open source security uh, mobilization plan. It has like three overarching goals and, and 10, you know, kind of substreams associated with that. I definitely recommend checking that out. Uh, and then obviously, you know, we have things coming out in this, like SSDF, they just publicized, you know, published uh, SSDF and they're looking to, you know, have software companies kind of a self-attest, which is another can of worms that we can get into if you want, <laughs> but uh, self-attest to their SSDF compliance when they're selling software to the government, for example. Uh, and then yeah. also another plug for NIST, you know, their 8161 uh, CSCRM, Cybersecurity Supply Chain Risk Management uh, Guidance, is pretty robust. And they have an Appendix F, which is really focused on the open source software aspect of things. Uh, mm -hmm. So it is a really challenging problem. And I think it's, you know, one that we're starting to pay more attention to, thankfully. Uh, and I'm glad that we're starting to see some traction for things like SBOM and VEX and, you know, uh, you know, more rigor around just managed service providers, cloud service providers, and how critical they are to the ecosystem. Uh, and you know, starting to put some rigor around that because the malicious actors have realized, you know, the value of it. And they're definitely taking advantage of it when you look at, you know, whether it's vendor proprietary stuff like SolarWinds and the impact of that, you know, open source software like Log4j or managed service providers, you know, like Kaisa, uh, you know, they're all kind of, uh, being targeted now because they essentially have such a broad reach across the ecosystem. Yeah, particularly cyber companies, but you know, you've seen lapses uh, go after the source code of many uh, key companies uh, yeah. like Okta, like Microsoft, like Samsung, and, and people move on, right? People move on with their lives when the source code gets stolen. It's like, oh, no big deal. What they don't understand, right, is people are going to use this access to the source code of these products to find zero days, and we're going to see a wave. Of, of breaches on these products because now they they can go behind the scene and and see exactly how everything is architected and that's a massive enabler for malicious actors to find uh entry points to to different systems so that's going to be uh very interesting to to for people to realize that uh their devsecops uh platform and pipeline and, and source code repo is now their crown jewel 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, solar winds and, and a couple other, you know, associated attacks you know, started to emphasize that, like, you know, we got so caught up in what's coming out of the pipeline, right? Ensuring that that was secure, it's been scanned, SAS, DAS, secret scan, you know, all those kind of things. Uh, but then we're realizing like, oh, wow, the uh, the uh, the pipeline itself is actually an attack mm-hmm. vector, a massive one. <laughs> yes. uh, because if you can compromise the that. The server and the suit code, yep. Yep. You can poison everything coming out of it and you can sign it. So it looks legitimate and people trust it. Uh, so people are starting to product, you know, uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, uh, you know, secure their, their build pipeline. Like they should be uh, securing their production systems uh, because it can have such a cascading impact coming off of that to many consumers, whether it's internal to your org or external, you know, if you're producing software and distributing it to uh, consumers downstream. Uh, so definitely much of an emphasis on the build uh, platform as well. And I think that's where we're seeing, you know, I didn't mention this previously, but if you look at Salsa, you know, kind of, uh, you know, spearheaded by Google, uh, supply chain security, you know, uh, they have levels of assurance, you know, zero through four, zero obviously being nothing and four being, you know, hermetic builds and, and the most level, you know, highest level of maturity that many organizations may not need to meet depending on their industry and security requirements. But if you look to that, you know, it's a great source of, of guidance of how to, you know, how do you build a robust software supply chain and how do you secure it appropriately? Yeah. And, you know, that, that's going to be a, a big, a big uh, lessons learned, a set of lessons learned for, for companies. You know, when you look at uh, uh, maturity of, of, of DevSecOps teams, I think uh, it's going to be a must for teams to start embracing the, the cattle uh, construct to, to really make their entire DevSecOps stack ephemeral and go back to immutable state multiple times a day. So they, they go back to non-state and, and they go back to uh, to their build server and, and all these tools being being back to uh, uh, what they should look like. And, you know, uh, having that ability to to do it, you know, rapidly and multiple times a day is going to drive your, your maturity and your adoption of, of, of security. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's crazy because if you look at uh, most teams in the government, we're very far away from that stuff. And yet we're the most... Uh, uh, targeted uh, organizations, and when I talk to a lot of the CIOs, we're barely, barely scratching the surface of DevOps, let alone DevSecOps, let alone you know all these uh, moving target defense, you know zero trust uh, principle. If you look at the um, uh, DODCIO, his his desire is to get to uh, zero trust uh, in DoD by 2027. Um, I would argue in 2027 it probably gonna be something called you know differently <laughs> so by the time you get there uh you know 10 years too late I, I remember i pushed your trust you know six years ago at dhs and and the guy in charge of sitsa at the time nppd uh told me he doesn't believe in zero trust yet and and you know he he was pushing uh einstein and 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 all the the parameter stuff that dhs has been doing for years uh with billions of taxpayer money wasted and he said no to, to deploying uh, even a pilot of zero trust in critical infrastructure and power and water and stuff like that, uh, which could have prevented some of the breaches we've seen also in that, that side of the house. Um, but then they end up getting an award of best employee of the year, of uh, a year where they already had left the government, right? It's just, it, you, you, can't make the, you can't make it up. It's just, how can you tell people to go and serve, take a pay cut, and go fight this nightmare, and then you see this kind of, of of nonsense political. And by the way, he got it because he, you know, he fought against Trump and and said the election was the most secure election ever, which whatever it is or not. But but the fact is, uh, you know, he said that, and that's why he got the award of the year. Uh, yet he's the guy that prevented the government to adopt zero trust, uh, and that's just 
that's mind-boggling for the guy in charge of cyber in 2020 you know it, it's just i don't yeah, know what we, to say yeah that's really unfortunate to hear and uh, i think you know you touched on a lot of key concepts worth calling out like personalities and politics aside but like you know moving to the immutable ephemeral state of infrastructure you know uh, driving down the dwell time of adversaries you know moving away from the kind of legacy concept of detection and prevention where obviously we need to do those things uh, but resiliency is the key and that's why you know if you look at the NIST, you know ron ross has done a great job of really emphasizing their latest uh, 160 publication that talks about yeah. uh, resilient cybersecurity systems for example uh, definitely recommend checking out that. And then on the zero trust front, you know, it is unfortunate that we've had programs, you know, like uh, JRSS and others that have kind of lasted as long as they did. Uh, we're eventually starting to, you know, shed those kind of things. And I will say, you know, that we are moving in a good direction. If you look at the the federal zero trust strategy, the CISA zero trust maturity model uh, that has come out, you know, obviously DOD has published the uh, zero trust reference architecture, you know, how they're handling paper. It's yes, paper. We, we need this stuff in prod, you know, that, 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 yeah. that, that's not going to stop China, you know, they're going to read the paper, they're going, oh, this is great. This is a great piece of research. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, a friend of mine always says, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, a strategy is one thing, but execution is another. And I think that, you know, that, that's, that's really emphasized here is like, you know, these are all great guidance and, and policies and processes and, and ways to start making uh, impactful change. But we ultimately need to make that change and make those impactful changes across the department, you know, and if we don't, uh, like you said, I think that there's going to be consequences, unfortunately, and we're going to see them. I mean, you would agree that we're already late, right? I mean, the, the, the DOD should already be behind a zero trust architecture in 2022, right? Yeah, I mean, you look at folks like uh, John Kindervog and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Chase Cunningham and others in the commercial side who have been kind of beating the zero trust drum for over a decade. Uh, you know, it has yeah, to be kind yeah. of disheartening for them to, you know, look. I guess it has to be, you know, good and bad in the sense they look and see that we are starting to adopt these things, but it took quite this long to get there. Uh, and we you kind of clung on to that legacy security model for quite as long as we did. Uh, but, you know, I hope well, that we, you know, we should be leading when it's we're talking about weapon systems. And now we're talking about connecting all these weapons together to create this uh, JADC2 magical IoT construct. If you do JADC2 without zero trust, you're going to put the nation at risk in terms of like actual tangible kinetic, you know, risk this is this is insanity you can't do that those weapons were not designed to be connected yeah i mean you're, you're kind of like you know touching on the the challenge or the, you know double x sort of connecting everything right and when you have ubiquitous yeah, connectivity yeah. across everything now you're at, guess what your attack surface is everything yeah without zero trust at least that's a that's a that's a criminal decision you know i i told people like don't do it if you don't have a zero trust stack you know what what makes me mad and you know people get upset when i get upset on linkedin but the fact is Maybe I know a little bit more than, than they do on the on the reason why I get upset. But but you look at you know uh, the the zero trust uh, pilot of DISA, right? So they refused to use the client native access point that we created in the Air Force Space Force, which was the largest implementation of zero trust that we've done in 45 days. By the way, thanks to Matt and Danny and and all the team building the the stack and stuff, right? So we built a zero trust stack. We put it on on class secret environments. We demonstrated you can do cloud and on premise environments. All good stuff. Um, and then, you know, time to scale, right? Time to grow. DOD start talking about zero trust. Great. We briefed them on, on CNAP. You know, they released the, the CNAP reference design. This DOD CIO signs it as something that's now available and accepted without a waiver, right? Great. All great things. And then, you know, DISA gets uh, some money to create a, a program uh, to start implementing zero trust. And what they end up doing is, again, going back to the prime model where they pick one big prime. And, and the worst, right? What, what drives me insane is they say, well, you know, we picked them because they said they could do it in six months. And we thought having a, a second option to, to the CNAP would be great. And, you know, that, that, that makes sense, I guess, right? 
when you say you know you want to have more than one okay uh but then they fail to deliver right after six months and and by the way the, the six months cost was six times the cost of what CNAP costs so it's for 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 the full year so so it's already like you know 12 times more expensive and, and and so that's one piece of data and we did it in 45 days so so you know so we're already six months so that's already way more time and then on top of that now they're saying well you know we couldn't get it done so we're gonna we're gonna need an 18 months extension i mean sit down right 18 months so now you're gonna pay not only you know uh 12 times but you're gonna probably end up paying 24 times to get just to basic unclass capabilities and 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 i'm like you don't have an excuse to say you you want to do it you know have two options now this is not like a quick pilot thing where you're just playing with stuff and see what sticks you're now saying it's going to be two year a two-year engagement and, and that's where you lose me and, and you know and, and the fact that they put a guy in charge of, of this program initially that that literally was the same guy when i started the, the cloud native access point that told me he went to a conference the week prior and heard about this thing called zero trust but he didn't believe in it or he wasn't sure if he should believe in it uh, we, we where we you know we were already pushing zero trust and and for years right and 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 at least on the commercial side and and he's the guy who slowed us down to get the cloud native access point accredited and now he's in charge of the program and seen as the uh, you know zero trust guru of, of of dod right who has never done it and know nothing about it you know it's just this is who we picked to get the job done and then we wonder why now it's going to be a two-year journey instead of 45 days when i did it but guess what i had the expertise and knowledge of years of doing this kind of stuff right and yet they don't want to reuse it so that that leads me to a beautiful transition of how do we make software more reusable and how do we adopt this modular architecture so we can finally reuse uh, pieces of stuff it's not just about apis and connecting connecting things together that's why people don't understand everybody talks about apis all day long they miss the point uh in in modular weapon system if you look at spacex 80 percent of the, the the platforms are reusing the same lego blocks and then 20 percent is customized lego blocks which accelerate the ability to create a new platform in a matter of days um you know a, a sensor on the jet could be reused as a sensor on a on a ship that could be a container that's a modular piece that's reusable as a lego block that's not an api you're going to connect that's completely different stuff what do you think how do we get there how do we make software more reusable yeah i mean we've you you just touched on it honestly and then we've touched on this throughout the conversation but it's moving to that declarative infrastructure as to uh, infrastructure as code mm -hmm. you know, kind of concept kind of containers pre-hardened containers and you know having a construct where people can reuse things that have been done by other program offices other entities uh, and aligning with those reference architectures. For example, CNAP is a good one. We had the CNAP reference architecture finally got published. Uh, and, and unfortunately, like, you know, for folks like me, I spent years trying to work with the legacy BCAP model with, you know, the Navy, the Defense Health Agency. Uh, and it was a real nightmare. No one enjoyed it. it you know, I guess it was a major bottleneck uh, when you talk about bandwidth and things like that. And it took us years to move the CNAP, you know, move the access point closer to the workloads that we're trying to protect. Uh, and it was a really bad example of, you know, how to do something, to be honest. It took way too long. Uh, but I'm glad that it got when I started the stuff, people told me it would never happen. I was wasting my time. Uh, you know, if I listened to people, I would have never even tried. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that it took a long, as long as it did. But I'm glad to see, you know, some uh, departments and agencies and program offices starting to look to the CNAP model and try to recreate that now. Uh, but they should be doing that in a way that they're leaning into what exists. If it's in a declarative state, you know, if we have 
pre-configured and uh, deployments, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a vendor agnostic, you know, Terraform kind of construct and pre-hardened containers. Terraform IEC stuff, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, people can take that and redeploy it. We shouldn't have this being done in a, a you know, kind of click ops, bespoke, you know, uh, every every unique uh, snowflake deployment. Uh, it should be done in a, a standardized, you know, way that aligns with the reference architecture. And I don't understand why we can't move towards that versus everyone trying to recreate something from scratch. Uh, and understand, like, well, the, what do you, know, you think? I must have failed somewhere, right? To 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 show them even after they extend for 18 months. I mean, okay, the first six months I gave them a pass. They wanted to have a second option. I, I kind of knew they were bullshitting, but but I said, okay, you know, I mean, you have a valid point. At least it's a good excuse, right? I, I knew they wanted to do their own thing, but, but you know, I, I kind of can play pretend. Uh, but but then they extended 18 months, right? So no, you don't have, uh, you know, that doesn't make any sense. So what could I have done to tell people like, we have the IAC. I told them that we it's automated push button deployment. You can reuse it. We could merge the team. We could do a joint team. I tried everything. I tried everything with this on this. Um, what what am I missing? There must be something that I'm not saying that that I need to say to make sure this happens. Well. You know, I don't. I can't speak for everyone, but like we said in the beginning, you have a polarizing personality. So people either love yeah, you or right. hate you. So I think depending on who's saying the message. But I've been right? gone for a year, so no more <laughs> of that excuse, right? I mean, the people trying to negotiate this stuff now, and it's not even me, right? Yeah, I think so that, I think that's the great excuse. I like it, right? But but by the way, all these decisions were made after I was gone. So yeah. there was no mom neck, no fighting, no whatever. There was a PM trying to say reuse the stuff. Steve Hesserholz, who is an awesome guy. Now at FDIC because he got so frustrated of the Air Force he left. Right, this guy is the nicest. I mean, he's a, literally the nicest guy on the freaking planet. I put him in charge to like because he's he's not only the smartest guy on zero trust that I know, but he's also like the nicest guy on the planet. Went to build partnerships, and yet guess what? Nothing happened. So 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 what else? There must be something else. There's something that we're not thinking about that that's making us fail at at, at partnering and and doing joint joint teams. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of it may come back to the system and incentivization. You know, people want to do things that they can claim that, you know, we created X or, you know, resume driven yeah. development, as they call it. And obviously there's incentives for primes, you know, big primes to go get new contracts and awards and funding and uh, things of that nature. Uh, but that's why I think like we need to have some level of leadership that drives, you know, rationalization across our portfolio. We shouldn't have these things being recreated over and over and over again uh, for additional costs. Mm -hmm. If it already exists, if it's already working, it's functional, it aligns with the reference architecture. Why are we why are we recreating these things? Yeah. I mean, there, there's no practical reason as to why someone would do this unless it's it's really I underestimate the, the power of the primes, right, to, to to push, I guess, somehow people to do it. I mean, it's just, well, I, I don't I mean, see anything else, you know, they, and by the way, CNAP is a company. It's not a single prime. The government is the integrator. It's the right way of doing business, right? Uh, we're in control. We don't get locked in. There's no magical, you know, black box showing up to, to our desk, right? Which is kind of what Booze is selling in this case, where it's a, it's a turnkey alleged, you know, you know, magical zero trust stack with, with Palo Alto. And it's and funny enough, it's, it is the competitor to the companies we ended up picking on, on the CNAP. And, and, and honestly, these companies were not even doing raise zero trust at the time. Uh, they kind of trying to know everybody called themselves zero trust, right? It's kind of easy. Um, I would argue they're not really doing zero trust, but that's a different story. Um, so do you think it's, it, it could be the fact that, that, that really, this is kind of the, uh, do, do the primes have such power over, over government people that, that this kind of stuff happens? 
I mean, like it's it's no secret that we have a revolving door. If you look at, you know, like, you know, it's not uncommon for a very senior, you know, federal civilian individual or a military leader, you know, to move from their position to a big government prime uh, to a very, you know, comfortable, well-paid, you know, uh, well-connected position. And then they start to exploit their Rolodex from there. Uh, you know, that's very common that we see that, unfortunately. And it happens, obviously, on the government side, too, you know, outside of tech, but on the government side more broadly. Uh, so that revolving door is really pervasive. And it, it's, uh, you know, I think that's a part of what, you know, why we see what we do. Uh, and, and, and ironically, you know, some of the companies that were involved in CNAP, uh, you, you didn't name any of them particularly, but I know some of them. And uh, if you go look at like uh, NIST also, you know, they have the NCCOE. Uh, if you go take a look at that, they just released, you know, a guidance on implementing a zero trust architecture. Guess who's in there? Some of the same companies mm -hmm. that were using yep. the, uh, the CNAP deployment. Uh, so here we are, you know, NIST is now recommending these same companies that were part of CNAP. Uh, you know, several years later. So why it wasn't adopted and why it wasn't reused does, doesn't make much sense to me, honestly. And by the way, it's also a common sense decision, right? A lot of people were pushing uh, to look at some of the competitors that were not even supporting classified use cases, saying, oh, we're going to figure it out later. CNAP can support all classification from day one because the mandate was to have no drift between classification levels and the stack has to run on our clouds and our on-premise environments and the control plane cannot be a freaking SaaS. You're not going to give the keys to the kingdom of DoD. I, I couldn't even believe when I heard this. I say we're going to we're going to host the policy enforcement point decision uh, on the cloud on the on the third party SaaS service. This is criminal. I mean, they, they you you cannot do this. This is just you give the keys to the kingdom, and and that stuff doesn't even run on the high side. So you can't even get to the real meat of zero trust. So it just makes no sense and yet you have you have another company that's done it and works and it's it works anywhere on, at the edge and, and on clouds and on space satellites and and you're not going to use it why like what's the reason right that should be that should be a technical requirement to be able to run on the high side yeah right? if you think about it like you're, you're talking about you know needing to have standardized deployments and repeatable deployments regardless of the classification level uh, and, and, you know, ironically enough, if you look at the federal, you know, FICAM, uh, you know, federal ICAM strategy, uh, they're yeah. very big proponents of moving to identity as a service, which is a SaaS based identity as a service model. So I'd be interested to see, you know, some dialogue between you and the, maybe the federal CISO council or something like that. Um, but, you know, that, 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 but actually, let, let's dig into this for a second, right? Because it's an interesting thing. These, my take is you, you clearly don't want to rebuild the stack, right? What, what, so, so I always want to be precise when I say stuff because, you know, people put words in my mouth. So I'm not against, you know, uh, software as a service that could be deployed on my cloud and managed by the third party, but it cannot be hosted as a multi-tenant uh, stack elsewhere. You, you should probably not put Zero Trust or ICAM in a third party SaaS hosted multi-tenant service. That's what I mean, to be precise. I'm not saying you should build your own ICAM stack from scratch and not use commercial products. I'm saying, you know, an Okta, for example, right, that got literally breached recently um, is probably not where you want to put your identity provider source of truth of all your freaking identity of DoD. You want to, if, if they were to support an Okta model where they give me a container and it can host it on my Kubernetes stack, on my different clouds across multiple regions, on my DoD enclaves, now we're talking, and that's what we've done with their competitor of Ping. You know, Ping was able to do that. That's why we picked it because they were able to bring on premise, not because I like Ping more than I like Okta. I actually like Okta better, by the way. But but the fact is, they couldn't support uh, hosting it 
on my premises. And, and by, yeah, by yeah. my premises, I mean, I mean, you know, it could be a cloud, but it's my enclaves. Yeah, you're getting down, you're getting down, like, you are kind of driving down the shared responsibility mile to where you have more responsibility and control that you feel comfortable with within your risk tolerance for DOD. You're talking of self-hosted models where you have some level of control over the instance and, you know, the, the higher up the stack, for example. And I think that's what, you know, it's a good call out so that people don't misunderstand what you're trying to say. Yeah, it's, it's also, you know, the reason is, is it's your crown jewel, right? Your, your zero trust stack. And I'm not saying you cannot use SaaS for other stuff, but, but for identity management and zero trust policy enforcement point, it's your crown rule, right? If someone yeah. breaches that, you're done, right? You can literally give access to wrong people to your stuff. I mean, literally, right? Yeah, um, bypass both. MFA, like, right? Fake identities, everything, right? So so the yeah. ability of, of being able to to control that, and, and by the way, have it ideally on your same uh, Kubernetes orchestration stack with this, your same cyber stack, your same visibility. You have zero visibility on what Okta does as a SaaS. In fact, they were breached and took months to take the customer to tell the customer they were breached, is that the right thing you want to to put your Chrome jewel in a place where you have no visibility, so you even know there was a breach? That just can't be the answer, particularly for DoD. I mean, okay, maybe some smaller agency can decide to take that risk, but but I would argue, if a product can deliver a, a SaaS-like service on my premises, and by the way, they do the support and maintenance in my cloud, so it's still kind of a SaaS. It's just in a place where I have visibility and I remove the multi-tenancy nonsense, which drastically augment the risk in terms of targeting, you know, being targeted, right? So, so that's my vision. Yeah, no, it's, it makes sense. You know, I think that depending on, like you said, the agency or the organization's risk tolerance, the level of control is going to look different. Uh, and then on the SaaS front, you know, like uh, another plug for Cloud Security Alliance, we just published a SaaS security best practices uh, guide. I definitely recommend looking into that because it touches on a lot of the things you talked about when you talk about notification timelines and things like, you know, it ties to SLAs and things of that nature. So if you're using a SaaS provider, uh, you want to thoroughly vet that provider, how they're hosting, where yes. they're hosting, you know, who has access, uh, response time. And disclosure. I, no one talks about disclosure of breaches, mm -hmm. right? I can tell you, no one asked that question, right? How quickly are you going to uh, tell me you were breached? When am I going to know? There was 2.5% of customer impacted by the Okta breach, according to Okta, which I, I, I'm not 100% sure it's actually the truth, but let's assume they're not lying, uh, which we have no way of, of actually verifying, by the way. Um, but, but okay, you take it for granted. But some of these people took months to find out they were part of the 2.5%. How is that yeah. acceptable? Yeah, two two point five, uh, you know, sounds uh, insignificant until you're a market leader like Aqua. <laughs> until you look at the number of customers. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, so you know, it, it's definitely a good point to call out, and uh, you know, in that respect. By the way, if it's two point five percent is DoD, that's pretty good, right? So. Yeah. You know. yeah, I think, uh, you know, SaaS has a lot of benefit, you know, depending on the organization, but if you're an enterprise sure. with the budget and the resources of, of DOD, for example, in many cases, it may make sense to do things yourself or work with a partner as you laid out in kind of a shared model, you know, so it really depends on the organization, your size, your resources, your, your risk tolerance is what's going to drive those technical decisions. I, I can tell you most of the SaaS companies I'm on the board of, I'm, I'm pushing them and, and most of them were already doing it, but I'm really pushing pretty hard that they should be supporting a use case where they can deploy on my Kubernetes cluster, right? And 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 provide the service and support as a SaaS, but but deploy on my cluster with through automation and you know uh, whether it's a Helm chart or Kubernetes operators, I don't care. But but really um, that model of delivery, I can tell you, in my opinion, is going to be uh, in the next five years a de default for most companies. I can tell you, I talked to CIOs of banks, telcos, 
healthcare companies, that's the only way they're going to consume those services. And they want it on their cluster. They want to have their cyber stack, their visibility. Uh, there's GDPR issues if they start hosting stuff elsewhere with multi-tenancy. There's a lot of things that are, that are making them say, you know, I'm not going to do that. I want it on my cluster. I want to have the same visibility, the same zero trust enforcement, the same concept there. And and uh, my take is companies that, that don't support a use case where they can deploy on your Kubernetes cluster are going to be out of business because SaaS alone is not going to cut it, particularly for, for these kind of uh, critical products. Uh, I yeah, might be wrong. But we shall no, see. I mean, I've, I've seen several cases already where organizations are considering considering a service offering and they'll ask, you know, can we use self-hosted? And if it's not an option, it has been a deciding factor in some cases, depending on the organization. Yeah, and many, many do it. I mean, if you look honestly on the spectrum of CNCF, I was because you know that's kind of the point of Kubernetes, right? Uh, so many, many people that embrace Kubernetes and abstraction and can deploy everywhere. The issue is you see a lot of products completely getting locked into cloud providers, right? So they have some uh, cloud services APIs that they're consuming. And now, you know, if you have to deploy this on my premises or whatever, I need to be on the same cloud and you're creating, you know, additional constraints. So that's why it's so important, right? To be modular and reusable and bring the stuff with you. I'm not saying you can you can use cloud services, but but you want to do it right. And and I can tell you the the companies I'm helping uh, part of the CNCF landscape, it's so essential that they're not dependent on the single cloud provider services. That just doesn't fly. Particularly if you want to do cyber stuff, or you want to do tracing, or you want to do service meshes, it's just not an option. You can't do that. Yeah, I think we're seeing the push, you know, for for, you know, especially in highly regulated and sensitive environments like the self-hosted model that you're talking about. And then also, uh, you know, just moving towards uh, more of a, you know, a, a kind of a risk assessment of, you know, should we put all of our eggs in one basket for one cloud service provider? We're seeing more, mm -hmm. more and more organizations move towards multi-cloud and kind of have best of breed depending on the service they want to consume and, and what their use case is. You know, we see that obviously with DOD and, uh, you know, JEDI and JWCC, uh, but that's another conversation. But nonetheless, yeah, I think we are seeing a push to multi-cloud, you know, depending on uh, what are we trying to do, what's our use case, and then that, that kind of dictates, you know, uh, how far we push into the cloud service offering. I mean, you know, some companies, it does, for some organization, it doesn't matter too much, right, to be agnostic and hybrid. For DoD, I, I really believe it's a must. I don't think you can succeed. You, you're talking about deploying at the edge on jets and bombers, and you want to be anywhere, and you want to run without a without a cloud uh, provider API kind of stack. So so you need that day one for most use case. Um, so I think it's it's just better to architect it that way and then you know have a bunch of containers and be modular and reusable and you know have these Lego blocks in Iron Bank and all that kind of stuff. Um, for other agencies, I think the other piece that they forget is sometimes you have a cloud provider that come up with a pretty innovative thing and now you can consume it because your your current provider does not have it yet and, and so okay you could you could you could easily start say well we're going to connect the cloud and do different things you could do that but but being ar architected to be agnostic because the minute you have a second cloud provider you need to bring identity uh you need to bring all these these abstraction layers and all these security stack if you start having two security stacks two identity stacks it just doesn't work very well and that's what we did with cloud one you know, having that abstraction layer for cyber and for identity management and and so people with an account could connect to both clouds without having to, you know, have two accounts and stuff like that. That's a proper way to scale hybrid uh, cloud. And, and most people don't even understand the problem yet. 
Yeah, I mean, it really gets to, like I talked about the system maturity model. If you look at their zero trust maturity model, like federation of identity providers is a key component of that. And you're touching on that, you know, when you talk about multi-cloud and, and moving from one cloud provider to another, or even on-premise, you need to have that kind of cohesive identity strategy uh, to successfully scale in that kind of an environment. Yeah, so you talked about it a little bit, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the continuous accreditation uh, stuff and the CATO. It kind of ties back to some of the work um, you know you guys are doing also with, with the kind of the virtual CISO and compliance as code and all that kind of uh, work. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on on continuous accreditation. Is it is it really the 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 future and, and kind of the only way to accredit? Do you still see a need of of using the legacy way of accreditation, or do we just move and embrace it and that's the way to go and, and move on? So I personally think it's definitely the future, you know, obviously, depending on what kind of environment and what, you know, tech stack you're talking about, it's going to be more difficult to accomplish. You know, if you're not in yeah, the cloud, for yeah. example, it's going to be challenging. Uh, but when we talk about, you know, you look at the DevSecOps and the reference architectures and trying to move at the speed of relevance, you know, the terms that we hear so many times, uh, but more broadly, definitely DevSecOps adoption. I don't see how we how we successfully achieve that with the legacy, you know, three year cyclical ATO pro approach. You know, I mentioned that I have four kids. Uh, you know, this kind of always reminds me of like, I check their room, it's clean. I come back in a year, you know what I mean? Like I come back in another year, like, it, it, you know, that, that's not, that's not getting your real continuous monitoring and having a level of assurance around the risk of your environment in near real time. Uh, so you're going to be a good, good, great parent at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I they, appreciate they would, they would not want to agree. They would <laughs> not go every five years and say, hey, is it okay? All good? <laughs> Yeah, but no, I mean, nonetheless, I think that like, you know, if we want real continuous monitoring, we want a real level of assurance around our environment, which ties to zero trust and a lot of the concepts we talked about, uh, continuous ATO, continuous RMF, if you're in the army, the term they use, or more broadly RMF, uh, you know, actually calls it ongoing authorization. Uh, that's the term we use here at, at CMS. Uh, you know, we need to have that because it's, it's going to be impossible to have that iterative delivery of software and value, you know, to the production environment if we're using the legacy, you know, paper-based mm -hmm. uh, three-year cycle of ATO cycles. It's just not going to scale. It's not going to work. No doubt. No doubt. That's for sure. Um, so so I guess when you look at, at, at the adoption of, of continuous ATO, um, that le leads us, of course, to OSCAL and compliance as code. Um, what, what, you know, is that foundational? And how much do you see people even understand, like the, the work you're doing now with that agency, do they do they start to uh, to understand OSCAL and, and do they see the importance of it yet? Yeah, they definitely do. That's what's uh, really neat is, uh, really neat, I'm sorry, is, uh, you know, CMS is uh, an early adopter of OSCAL. They've been working closely with GSA and uh, also FedRAMP PMO too, uh, and NIST. Uh, to be an early adopter of OSCAL. Obviously, it's not you know agency-wide, and it's going to be a, a, a journey to get to that point. Uh, but I think everyone's realizing like this legacy approach of paper-based documentation when we're moving at you know, you know deployment speed that we're trying to get to, uh, that paper-based approach is not going to scale. And we talk about being modular and reusable. The same concept applies to compliance. If I'm deploying you know the CNAP reference architecture, for example, over and over again, or DoD infrastructure as code, I shouldn't have to manually document these things over and over again. I should have that documented as code in OSCAL format so that it could be reused. It could be modular. It can be a component. Uh, you know, if I'm deploying Splunk or I'm deploying, you know, X, Okta, whatever, you know, that should be reusable in that context that, you know, it's already been documented what controls it meets at what, you know, um, what's, uh, you know, low, moderate, high, for example, system categorization level, uh, it should be captured in documentation as code. So I definitely think that's the future. Uh, and we have seen the FedRAMP PMO accept their first SSP in OSCAL format. 
uh, you know, how quickly this will spread across the industry in terms of the federal and the DOD workforce is, uh, remains to be seen. Like I said, there's a lot of problems when it comes to the assessment and the compliance workforce. Uh, but I definitely think if we're moving to infrastructure as code, compliance as code, uh, that's definitely where we need to see things go in terms of OSCAL for documentation. And then, you know, just shifting to the compliance as code aspect of things, you know, I was an early advisor to a company that uh, uh, had TerraScan. Uh, they were called Curix and they got acquired by Palo Alto, actually. But or, or not Palo Alto, but uh, Tenable, I want to say. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, like, you know, you should be able to bake in your compliance requirements, your security requirements into your infrastructure as code, uh, you know, the, uh, manifest and, and, you know, scripts. If we shouldn't have open buckets, if we need to have encryption at rest, if, you know, all these kind of uh, configuration requirements should be baked in uh, so that we're not pushing things to production and then coming after the fact and going, oh, wow, uh, we've had a publicly exposed bucket for, you know, seven weeks. Uh, you could have caught that earlier in the pipeline, earlier, you know, before it ever went to a production environment. Uh, so I think compliance as code is really helping you shift security left, shift compliance left, uh, catch vulnerabilities early on the life cycle and automate a lot of the manual activities that people will go around. You know, I remember the days where people would, you know, shoulder surf. Hey, can you log into this system? Take a screenshot and show me that this configuration is set as X. Like, no, it should be declarative. You should be able to audit that in an automated fashion. Uh, and, and that's the direction that we're headed and that's the direction that we need to go. Yeah. Configuration as code and GitOps and, and it's so essential. Uh, to get to that uh, cattle ephemeral state, uh, you can't get there without it. And I've been pushing pretty hard, you know, several companies, but but of course I'm on the board of of uh, SDLM and you know the, uh, the 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 product that does a lot of the uh, compliance automation stuff for Kesaran and others. And and I've you know I've pushed pretty hard for them to fully embrace uh, OSCAL and it's happening. So uh, you know that's the other piece of OSCAL, right? That's the challenge is is very few products yet uh, support it. And and of course you know it's a massive lift. Um, for people to start generating all this stuff if there is no, um, you know, turnkey ability to 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 automate that that whole process, and, and so companies like you know, um, uh, reg, reg scale mm -hmm. and uh, um, you know, SD elements are, are fully embracing uh, OSCAL. I was actually very impressed also by by reg scale and the ability to uh, to completely end to end uh, support OSCAL all the way to. Uh, to the poems and, and the profiles. And so it's, it's a massive lift. It's, it, it, you know, OSCAL might be actually, it's, it's so powerful and so flexible that, that it's it's a very complex thing to implement. And, and most uh, products out there that do GLC or some type of uh, risk management thing uh, have a very tough time even understanding how this works. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've touched on continuous ATO or, you know, ongoing authorization, whatever term you want to use. We touched on compliance as code, infrastructure as code, and DevSecOps. Uh, you know, the GRC thing is a major problem. You look at the legacy GRC tooling like EMAS, for example, or on, you know, other federal agencies use Archer, for example. They're not using uh, OSCAL native formats. They don't have APIs that you can interact with off your pipeline, your CI systems, and things of that nature. Uh, I see uh, Dr. Mark Smiley there. Hope he's doing well. Um, but nonetheless, yes, he, like those, those he was the, the most impactful guy I've met on Miter uh, to to get to get not only dozens of my publications done, including uh, the Contus ATO guy. And most of the schemas I use in my training uh, came from Mark. So I'm I'm thankful for his uh, service to to our nation. Yeah, he's awesome. I had a chance to collaborate with him on the continuous ATO guide at one point uh, and, you know, be a peer reviewer and such. Uh, but yeah, those GRC systems, I think, you know, if we're going to move towards DevSecOps and continuous monitoring in near real time, uh, you know, pushing code to production on a regular basis, like the legacy GRC system of hand jamming all that in 
It's just not going to scale. Uh, but we do need modern systems like RegScale is an is a awesome, innovative capability. I know the uh, the founders really well, and they're building a real product. Uh, they've done this. They've been in the trenches at uh, other agencies, you know, doing this kind yeah, of work. Say, yeah. 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 So they're, they're bringing that wealth of experience and really innovating in this space uh, to help agencies and, you know, commercial clients as well, you know, on the, uh, whether you're HIPAA or SOC 2 or, you know, on and on, like, you know, yeah. Actually, yeah. I was, you know, I, I'm actually very good at criticizing products, as you know. And, and when they did the demo of their the solution, it's probably one of the rare, maybe the first time where I couldn't come up with one thing to criticize. So that tells you a lot about the quality of the stuff they built. I was pretty upset about myself. I, I, I was trying to do a little bit better than that, but I couldn't literally come up with a, a decent uh, thing. I think I came up with a bullshit. Like they were not supporting SAML for authentication. So I had to come up with something, but that's just uh, anecdotal, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. We'll call you the, the Simon Cowell of, you know, product assessment. <laughs> yeah. So how you talk about the training before, right? A little bit. Uh, we talked about uh, keeping up when you look at, at, you know, your company, you're the co-founder of Agria, right? You have people, you have, you have to make sure they, uh, they don't stop. Uh, I mean, I assume you have to make sure they don't start getting 20 years behind uh, since you hired them, you know, that's kind of a lot of people uh, make in terms of mistake, right? They, they buy, you know, they, they get excited, they hire, hire a great talent, right? They, um, they love the expertise and then they, they stop investing in them to learn. And then they wake up uh, uh, two years from now and they realize they are completely obsolete. And that's only because of uh, uh, the leadership not empowering them to, to go and learn and, and giving them the time and, and the tools to, to do that. Uh, what do you think about when you look at you know your staffing and, and your manning and, and how do you uh i guess uh, streamline or facilitate the learning uh, do you share some of the the sources and the and i love also to get maybe your top three uh sources of, of content that you you personally keep up with outside of my show which is obviously number one but uh the three other uh, would be great yeah, yeah, I mean, from from a company perspective, like we realize that you know, being a services based company, like our people are our number one asset, and they are allow allowing us to go out and compete and and you know, win work and make an impact and drive mission outcomes. Uh, so we have a very robust you know training budget. We encourage people to use it every year. Uh, we have you know company subscriptions to places like Pluralsight and you know ACOG Guru or Code Cloud or some of my primary mm. sources you talked about. Use ACOG Guru. Uh, I, I heard a lot about it. You like it? Yeah, yeah. And if you, I mean, if you want to talk cloud native, uh, I can't talk well enough about Code Cloud. K O D E K L O U D. Uh, very mm -hmm. heavy emphasis on Kubernetes containers, Istio service mesh. Uh, they have some really amazing courses that I've used to pass Kubernetes courses myself. Uh, and yeah. then also Linux Foundation has been putting out some pretty uh, decent yep. DevSecOps course. You know, I, I took their CKNA uh, course that they have, you know, a Kubernetes native associate course or cloud native mm -hmm. associated course. I'm sorry. Uh, and those are some of the virtual training platforms. But we also encourage people to, you know, not only go out and learn, but also we have a, a certification bounty, a 3X. So if it costs you... You know, $300 to take an exam and you pass, we'll pay you $900 uh, trying to incentivize mm. people to take exams. Uh, and then also, like, you know, not only take it, but go ahead and share that knowledge. So we try to encourage people to go out. And if you take an exam, you pass it, write a blog post about it. You know, talk about your experience, what you learned, how you mm. learned, you know, uh, share that knowledge with the community, both internal to the company and obviously external to the, you know, the broader community through through our website and things like that, our blog. Uh, I think that's a big thing. And then also, like, you know, I'm a big proponent of uh, brown bags. If someone has niche expertise, like, you know, maybe they're really well, uh, you know, versed in purple teaming or Kubernetes uh, attacking, you know, those kind of things. Uh, come share that conversation with the team. You know, we have people mm -hmm. that have unique expertise in threat modeling and things like that. And it's great to hear from them. 
and share that knowledge among the team. Uh, so we try to create that culture. And then obviously me, I'm always pushing to learn, to read, to write, you know, to, to publish things. So I think that hopefully that gives a culture of, you know, Hey, yeah, uh, we, we want to keep learning. Yes, exactly. I'm trying to lead by example in that, in that regard. And I hope that, uh, you know, the federal agencies can do something similar in terms of training budgets and, and certification bounties and other innovative mm-hmm. ways uh, to bring learning and content. Cause I'll say, you know, when I was a federal employee, I had to fight tooth and nail just to get reimbursed. Uh, and, and, you know, if I'm taking a AWS certification, for example, I took like eight of them while I was a, a federal employee and it was hard to get reimbursed for those. Uh, so, yeah. you know, we talk about how critical the workforce is, but we're not really investing in them. And that's something that, you know, I wish we would have touched on a little bit more is, you know, we talk about zero trust and cloud and DevSecOps and all these things. We're buying all the tools, but what about our people? Uh, we don't really mm-hmm. invest in our people. And that's a really major uh, problem in my opinion. Yeah, no doubt. You should have taken all these amazing uh, DAU legacy classes, although the new stuff is getting better. But, you know, that should have been that would have been free. Come on. You did. You took the Amazon course. Oh, you know, you should not have done that. That's why, you know, that you can only blame yourself. No, I'm just kidding. with you. It's obviously, you know, DAU is finally waking up. So I think, you know, I see some progress They're actually buying uh, access to Coursera and different different uh, platforms. And and they're creating, uh, you know, deep learning uh, capabilities and um with you know linking a short segments together right so like two five minutes ten minutes stuff and putting it together as a course instead of like these massive you know uh courses that takes hours you know so so yeah. they're getting there yeah i mean um, I, so I, you, I, you you fund all this stuff so you give access to like the the the, the kobe uh stuff and the 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 code the code stuff and the uh, a club guru stuff you 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 pay as a company and you give access to your people yeah, we purchase, you know, subscriptions for, for the organization and allow people to get licensing and access to that, you know, because so that they can continue to learn and continue to grow and, and provide value to ultimately our clients, you know, as an organization. Do you recall how much you end up spending uh, on average per person on learning? Uh, I'll say that, you know, uh, annually we have a $5,000 budget per person for conferences and certifications and training and like that, you know, things of that sort. Does that include the the, the, the cost of these, these platforms? No, 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 that's in addition no. to. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's an addition. What about the platforms? You know how much that cost you? I couldn't. I couldn't say off hand. Off hand, like you know, uh, yeah. another uh, co-founder. Because that a lot of people think it's super expensive, but I don't think it is. But no, uh, I, I pay. I pay. You know, personally out of pocket for Code Cloud. I think I paid 120 bucks for the whole year. Like, and, yeah. and I can use all their courses, Istio, Kubernetes, you know, Service Mesh, all these different courses, like for 120 bucks. Uh, and, and they have browser-based labs. I can, you know, jump right into a terminal and start working with, you know, Kubernetes manifests and clusters and things like that. Uh, that's one thing mm-hmm. I will say, like DAU is great. Uh, I'm old school. I can remember using FedBTE, if people remember that uh, amazing platform. Uh, but I think that DOD should lean into the existing service providers. There's a really robust yeah. and rich ecosystem of training providers out there. We don't need to create this it started, all. This started to do that. This started to do yeah. that. Buy it. Yeah. Yeah, I decided to do that, and and same thing for the uh, uh, what is it, the digital university at the Air Force? Uh, they're they're buying uh, you know the Udemy and and Coursera mm-hmm. and yeah. Yeah. Side of the world. One. yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's how you you do it, and so you lead by example, and you give the tools, and and what about time? You know, I used to to say you know give time to people to learn. Do, do you actually tell people to take to to put time aside that paid time to go and learn, or it's just something they have to do? do extra to their normal hours i guess yeah it's a combination of both like i'm definitely a big proponent of encouraging like taking focus time i'll even do that on my own calendar like you know carve out a few hours you know uh, throughout the week if i can uh but obviously it's difficult in the role i'm in now you know in, in the leadership role i'm in now to take quite as much time as i used to uh, but i definitely yeah. encourage folks to do that 
Uh, and then honestly, like if you're passionate about this stuff, you know, you're learning all the time, even in your, you yeah. know, I, I, me, I'm listening to podcasts when I'm working out or going for a run, you know, I'm, I'm listening yeah. to like yeah. the latest conference on YouTube or something like that. Like I'm always learning. And I think that that's something you need to really make part of your daily habit uh, to keep up with things. Uh, so I definitely yeah. try to recommend folks do that too. And, and so when you, when you think about, um, you know, people on the service contract, right. Many of those uh, SIs, um, you, you know, argue that, uh, you know, that those people are full-time dedicated to, to a customer, right? So they, they often get stuck in time and, and stop learning. And even, even when I talk to some of these guys, they're like, yeah, but that's not part of the work they're doing now. Why would they learn it? You know, uh, what's your take on, on enabling or convincing the customer, the final customer to also, um, let those people learn. So, so the, the talent they're paying for, uh, doesn't become stale. Yeah, I think that's a that's actually an interesting challenge to be honest, because like you know the way contracts work, there's no guarantee that the individuals doing the work for you now will be the individuals doing mm -hmm. the work in the future. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of you know tough to convince making an investment in, in you know a group of people who may not be the ones doing the work in two years, for example. Yeah. Uh, yep. So, but I. But, you know, but, they might, but, but you know, there's this there's, there's this um, uh, image, right? I forgot the meme um, that that's saying, you know, what, what if I think it's the CFO that says, what if yeah. we invest in the people right and and they they leave and they, they say what if we don't and they stay right yeah i, so I mean i literally have because they stay I, too and then this this they're not vague <laughs> yeah no i've literally left roles for that reason if they weren't willing to right? invest in me i'm paying out of pocket you know uh, i'm a civil servant not making a, much money and i'm paying out of pocket to take these trainings these certifications on my own time and, and i can't even get reimbursed uh you know ultimately people end up leaving uh, so you have yeah. to invest in your yeah. people because uh, if they're not growing and if they're a growth oriented individual, you know, their growth mindset, uh, they're going to leave for someone that will uh, put them first and invest in them. And I think that in we fact, need to think I would argue that. They, they might leave earlier, right? That if they left, it's probably because you didn't do it. If you did, maybe they would have stayed longer. Yeah. If, if you have, if you're in an environment where you're facilitating growth and you're like encouraging people to grow professionally, to learn new things, to thrive, uh, they're likely going to stick around versus if you, if they feel like they're not valued, uh, you don't really care about the professional development, their growth, uh, they're not going to stick around. And, uh, I think, you know, companies and, you know, aside as a broader DIB ecosystem, defense industrial based ecosystem, we need to think about that, uh, because it is a small community at the end of the day with a lot of the same companies and a lot of the same people. Uh, so we want to invest in them because they're the ones ultimately helping us deliver for the warfighter or the citizen. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's going to pay back. Right. And some may not, and some will, right. It's a kind of a balance. Right. Um, so I have one more question, but then, you know, I know we're almost out of time, but I, I have so many questions from the public, but we're not going to be able to do all that, but uh, we're going to do as, as much as we have time left. But my last question to you was, you know, I guess it's tied to all this. I, I'm sure the answer is you, you are trying to, uh, to, to, to do the best for you, but what made you uh, partner and, and create your own business? Yeah, I mean, some of it was, uh, you know, wanting to, like you said, do the best, you know, for myself or my family and things like that. But also I found myself in a situation where I was at some companies previously, great companies and great folks, uh, and they were giving me opportunities to grow their cyber practice. And eventually I started asking myself, like, why don't I try to do this myself uh, so that I have some more level of autonomy and be able to do things the way I think that, you know, should be done or drive more of an impact. Uh, and that's kind of what led me down this path. And luckily I found some partners that, you know, had had also, you know, military backgrounds, a mission oriented mindset, and they wanted to bring a new breed of, you know, GovCon, uh, for lack of a better term, to the ecosystem, you know, people that actually code, people that actually keep up on technology, that do real security engineering and architecture, and not just, you know, butts and seats type stuff. Um, 
and that's kind of what led me down the path. And like, you know, so far it's been a, a really interesting journey, uh, not all easy at all. I've learned a lot of things, you know, outside of cyber, when you talk about, you know, primes and subs and contract vehicles and all these kind of things, I've learned so much. Uh, so it's been an amazing experience so far. Yeah. And it's fun too, right? And and I hope you end up making uh, much more money too, but it takes time sometimes, but you know, it pays mm -hmm. off if you work as hard as uh, you claim to be working. So, and I believe you. So, uh, all right. So questions from the public. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick a couple of interesting ones. Sorry for all the others, but, uh, there's too many. Um, all right. So let's start here. That's an interesting one. Uh, China is on track to graduate twice as many science, technology, engineering, and mathematics uh, PhDs at the U S by 2025. Uh, what should we all be doing to help advance our future generations? Yeah, by the way, is, I'm, uh, I'm going to say, you know, PhDs or not, I don't really care. But, uh, you know, I think really PhDs end up, end up being a lot of researchers. I don't bring that much value at the end of the day. But, you know, uh, who knows? But uh, I think, you know, the, the key is to learn their expertise, not so much the degree, but, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely something to, said, uh, to be said between, you know, collaboration and, and knowledge sharing between academia and practitioners. But, you know, one thing is like, obviously, they have a much bigger population, so they're probably going to graduate more people than us. But, you know, the reality is like, I don't think we're encouraging enough people to go into STEM. And, you know, look at STEM fields, like I'm a, an adjunct professor at two different universities. Uh, I have four kids. You know, I think there's definitely some growing interest in those kind of a fields and, and, you know, fostering that interest among younger individuals. Uh, but I think we need to have many more programs starting at a much younger age. People are interacting with technology when they're very young. Uh, we need to be really driving that and encouraging that and, and fostering the, you know, them be interested in coding and architecting and building things with technology. Uh, and also, you know, just showing like what the number of opportunities are. When you talk about employment, uh, people are taking on massive amount of student, student debt to graduate with a degree that's totally worthless. So they can't get any employment for it. Uh, showing them, hey, there's a lot of unfilled jobs that make, you know, a very good living in this career field. You should give this a look. I think that could be very motivating uh, a factor as well. Yeah, the most pay, well-paid jobs are actually probably um, uh, literally on the on the DevSecOps side. It's it's the only place where you can do a couple of years of experience and get a you know half a million salary. Uh, so anyway, um, so uh, I guess you know there's one question for you, and then uh, I'll let you do the closing words. But then I have a someone that asked me a question. I want to give him an answer. So I'll, I'll take the last question after you you say your your last uh, final words. But before that, I have one more question here. Um, so, uh, you know, we were talking about training, I guess. And, and so what if the, the, the leader is supportive of the training, but it never takes place because of scheduling or, you know, everything gets pushed and, and mission takes priority or, or some other excuse. What, what, what do you, what do you say to that? I have my own answer, but I, I like to hear yours. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I think this is very common. You get so busy, right? And it, it reminds me of the meme where you see like the caveman pushing something and there's someone with a wheel and they say, we can't, we're too busy. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like that, that one a lot. Yeah, like if, if you're too busy to take time to learn and, and grow, like, you know, eventually it's going to catch up and it's going to bite you. And I hope that leadership takes time. You know, you kind of reiterate that that to them. Like, you know, we need to carve out time for this. We need to be deliberate and intentional about this. And it's challenging. Like it is, you know, you get busy, schedules get chaotic. Uh, but if you don't take time to learn, you know, eventually you're going to stagnate and fall behind. Uh, so really try to get through to leadership about that. But ultimately, if, if you continue to try and, and they don't hear you, you know, you may need to make a decision to check out another environment, unfortunately. Yeah, and I kind of call BS on on on, on that, right? If if it's one time, okay, but if it's, if it's continuous and it's it happens a second time and third time, you know, then it's 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 just a, a pile of excuses and it's it's just never been a priority 
uh, to your leadership and it's just a toxic it's it's a, just a, a poor excuse right it's just like uh you know people come up with different uh reasoning sometimes to justify uh, stupidity but uh i think in this case uh you know one time okay but uh, more than that you know then you have to prioritize it and you know people need to understand that that not learning is getting behind and getting behind is losing so uh you know there's no excuse there uh, always let you know the guests uh give last words and then i'll take the, the question we talked about and tell people about uh the next guest and uh, of course wanted to thank you for for joining the the show it was a great great session but uh, over to you for for the last uh words yeah i mean first off just thank you for having me on the show i've been uh, following the content you know obviously i worked uh underneath you or associated with you on the the platform one side of things and watching your impact across dod uh, but that said, like, I'm, I'm thankful to be on the show and all the people tuning in. And honestly, I'm just, uh, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm super active and I'm, I'm really passionate about uh, making a difference in federal cybersecurity and technology. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful to be part of the ecosystem of all the great people we have. And I look forward to continue to collaborate with everyone. Yeah, and uh, you're honestly the only one I know that's getting anywhere close to my numbers on LinkedIn. So it's making me a little upset. So you're going to have to slow down a little bit, okay, because you cannot become number one. That's not a thing. Okay, so you're going to have to slow down your game a little bit. Okay, because I can't keep up with you. So I'm a little, you know, I'm old now. Okay, so I don't know how old you are, but I'm, I'm 38. So, you know, it's, uh, it's too much. I can't do this stuff anymore. I'll All right, let's take, uh, let's take the, the question from Joseph. Um, so he was asking, you know, it's funny, it's funny to see my face uh, on all the platform one uh, branding. He was curious if, if, I, if, it, if I think that platform one will continue to be maintained at the same level. Uh, after my uh, my departure, um, so so first, it's important to understand that uh, maintaining at the same level is not good enough because we're going to get behind and and if we don't innovate and don't 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 think outside the box, it's it's a problem. I've I've really spent a lot of time and and raising awareness with SecAF and others uh, and the leadership in the OD, uh, you know, about how important Platform One is, and I think it's it paid off because platform one was not funded from 2023 to 2026 and now it is uh fully funded uh money is a piece of the problem my, my biggest fear is we lost uh you know seven out of the, of the eight uh founder of platform one on the government side so some of the vision and kind of the um uh, the outside the box thinking is is kind of disappearing and, and you know once you have a lot of turnover after that and and there was no direct interaction between me or, or the those founders and the new people slowly but surely the the, the story is, is changing and and my fear is that uh, we don't really have that same vision so uh you know i think it's something to to pay attention to and uh you know um it's not just about maintaining stuff it's also keeping the right vision and the right focus and and i've i've seen a, a few mistakes being made but but the good news is we have a good two-way street to, to raise awareness and and make sure people pay attention. So, so far I've seen both uh, uh, Mr. Hunter and um, uh, Mr. Kendall, Secretary Kendall, um, really pay attention to it every time I, I send an email. So this was this was great. So I appreciate their their uh, devotion and their service uh, to our work fighter. So uh, it doesn't mean we just stop paying attention, uh, but it's, it's looking pretty pretty good but we we need the right leadership and and we have a great leader um with uh, brian viola so that's that's a good step but uh uh you have to have that throughout throughout the organization as well uh the next guest on tuesday uh the 21st at 1 p.m uh, is uh nat 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 uh, is the uh co-founder and ceo 
of Acunox. And we're going to have a very interesting discussion on security about uh, uh, Cube Armor, which is a CNCF project, and eBPF, uh, which is also a game-changing runtime security capability. So if you want to learn about what eBPF is and, and uh, Cube Armor and App Armor and, and uh, SE Linux and all that good stuff, uh, which is mandated, by the way, in DoD, uh, you should uh, join us and, and hear what uh, uh, what uh, Nat Naj has been uh, pushing in the last uh, uh, few years as part of the CNCF uh, work. Uh, so with that, I thank you for taking the time. Please subscribe on our YouTube channel and, and the mailing list so we can uh, notify you of the next uh, episodes and videos. In the meantime, everybody stay safe and make sure you invest in yourself to learn so we don't get behind so our kids can have a fighting chance at winning against China uh, 20 years from now. Thanks so much for joining. Stay safe.